Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 64 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other familiar voice that you hear on every episode will be Matt Feuerstein. But this time, not only do we have a guest, we have a first-time guest and a great guest, like all our guests are. But this one, not only were they the earliest, most prompt guests we've ever had, not to shit on all our other guests, who were, by by early, I mean they showed up 10 minutes early, and all our other guests either showed up on time or five minutes late. So I don't know why I'm even stressing this right now, but they are a great guest. I can tell they're going to be great already, because they are from another great podcast, sadly, no longer with us, this podcast, but... um. The Everything Evolves podcast, if you want to listen to a podcast that reviews shows from a Gabe Sapolsky-booked independent wrestling promotion, we are not your only option. In fact, even an honorable mention is not your only option because even though Evolve was done, even though this podcast is done, I can tell you it was a great podcast. Big fans of the show, big fans of the work they did on the show. And I think you also still make an occasional appearance on kind of the spiritual successor, successor, which is um the uh, Everything Elite podcast. Both those podcasts on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. One of the two Aaron's, Aaron Taub. How are you doing? It is great to have you here. I'm doing great, Trevor. Thank you so much for having me. I am, I'm a longtime uh, listener. I'm super pumped. I'm fired up to be here with my, my fellow uh, deep vein thrombosos, my scar babies. <laughs> um, I'm just thrilled to be here with you guys. I feel like this episode is years in the making. Um, I feel like I, I uh, one of the perhaps one of the few guests who uh, asked to be on the show um, uh, no, several years all ago. Yes, almost all <laughs> guests. Yeah, yeah, they're feeding down the, the door. Yeah, 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 right. They're begging. Yeah, no, it's uh, actually it, true. Because no, no, really. not not, not, not Justin Shapiro. He he's he he's like yeah. No, we're making you be on the show, Justin. But yeah, everyone else, protest. yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> I'm fired. I'm really uh, thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to to talk about uh, this this wrestling show with y'all today. Th- thanks for being here, Adam. Aaron, where man, I just called you Adam. Um, so I'm gonna should I edit that out or should I just leave that in? That yeah, that's fine. It's cool. I'm cool so, with it. I so, don't you so, know. So you know, it's similar cadence. I also I'm gonna call Trevor Adam just so it doesn't sound like I'm just being offensive to you personally. Um, so Adams, both Adams that I'm talking to right now, actually Trevor, I um. When you were introducing Aaron, you said, sadly, no longer with us. I was like, wait, since we just started recording, that happened? Like, that's, I was like, <laughs> you could probably, if you go back and listen, hear me like start to regret that choice of phrase halfway through the phrase. Like, oh, that sounds down. <laughs> <laughs> but he is, but he is um, happily currently with us. So thank you, Aaron. Um, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And I just want to make it note, like, um, most of our guests have asked to be on the show, and but they're all people we would have asked to be on the show, except I think we're too afraid to ask people to be on the show because it is such a time commitment. To, I mean, we're not between the sheets, but you still, you have to watch a show. You have to spend like two and a half to three hours with us on a Saturday night, usually. And so we have been so lucky that like anytime someone that like just really talented and, and amazing, like we've been lucky with all our guests, is like, hey, I would like to do your show. It's like, oh, thank God. Like now, now if they don't like the experience it's like it's their fault it, it, it takes all the pressure off of us so <laughs> it is fantastic that talented people like you have um asked and thank god matt remembered because as you said like you did make that request like a long time ago you kind of um you know you got your dibs on manhattan mayhem way way long ago and we 
finally have gotten to the show at the glacial pace we record at. Yeah, actually, um, you uh, you were on a bit of a, a Twitter hiatus, and I was uh, right around before we recorded Stalemate, and I was like, do you have any contact information for Aaron? Because uh, I, I I know we, we can't do the Manhattan Mayhem show without him. So luckily, you uh, you re-signed up, and I was like, I was like on it. I was like, Aaron, are you still down for Manhattan Mayhem? Yeah, I appreciate that. I would have been so bummed. To have missed this because I was I was uh, in I mean sometimes I deactivate every now and then because uh, sometimes there's just like a lot of bad posts on Twitter and it yeah and it oh, makes yes. me oh, yes. or quote, angry and quote so unquote just, quote unquote uh, sometimes sometimes yeah, from time to, <laughs> on occasion um, and so I have an alt where I just I I follow like my my six closest wrestling Twitter friends and uh, and that's that's about it but uh, yeah so I'm glad to be back uh, you know back on Twitter. And here with y'all tonight. Well, you're a smarter man than me in terms of, of occasionally taking time off of Twitter. But as I said before, we do record these podcasts that I, I maybe I was too hard. When I said glacial pace, you know, between usually two to th- four weeks, usually two to three between episodes. But if you want to get into into our archives, the good news is we have been along around long enough now that we have a fair bit of archives. So if you go to search on any of your uh, favorite podcast apps for Through the Years, we have our own feed. That is just our show. But we are also still on the Pro Wrestling Podcast, Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Tons of great shows there, including us. So, you know, subscribe to one, subscribe to both. They're both great options. And with that, I think there wasn't really any news that happened between the last Ring of Honor show we covered in this one, so we can get kind of right to the show, although there is a lot of background about where it took place and the significance of it. So we'll we'll get right to it. Manhattan Mayhem took place May 7th, 2005, at the New Yorker Hotel in Manhattan, New York, in front of a reported crowd of 750 fans. So to start off with, I didn't realize this until I went back and did the research, it originally was not supposed to take place at the New Yorker Hotel because uh, go going back to a PW Insider at the time, they Mike Johnson wrote, Ring of Honor moved their debut in Manhattan at the New Balance George Washington Bridge Armory up from May 21st to May 7th. Part of the reason for that was that two different independent groups are running Long Island on the 21st, and the promotion felt it would be run, starting things off on a bad foot in a new market by running opposite them the first night in, so they made a call to the venue and rescheduled the debut. Ringside tickets for the show, which first row are priced at $45, are selling fast. And then, of course, I don't know why they changed buildings, but then that happened. They changed from uh, the Armory to the New Yorker. Uh, Gabe actually talked about it a bit uh, at the Pro Wrestling Torch. Uh, the Torch wrote, Ring of Honor makes its Manhattan debut on May 7th, and Ring of Honor promoter Gabe Sapolsky considers it one of Ring of Honor's most important events to date. It is among the most important shows in Ring of Honor history, Sapolsky tells the Torch. Anytime you're in midtown Manhattan, right down the street from MSG, you have to make an impact. They say if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And that is true, exclamation mark. The, uh, for some reason, I thought that was cute. Uh, the event has been relocated from the Armory to the New Yorker Hotel on 34th and 8th Avenue, right around the corner from the Hammerstein Ballroom and just down the street from Madison Square Garden. It's considered a much better location than the original location, Sapolsky says. Well, it is never good to change locations. However, this did work out well, as the new location is in about a million times better spot than the old one. So, since I am the lone Canadian here on on the feed with a couple New Yorkers here, um... Do you like my accent? Could could you guys tell me? Do you guys are aware? Like, is I mean, I assume this is a better location. Like, 
do you guys are you guys even aware of where the uh, the New Bounds George Washington Armory is? I I, I am not. Uh, Aaron, are you familiar with that place? No, I'm gonna look at it. Let's look it up now. Okay, and yeah, see I, if it still exists. Yeah, if it if it's anywhere near the George Washington Bridge, then uh, I mean yes, but also I would say no matter what, yes, this is. I don't think you can get right. a, a like in terms of like traffic and accessibility in Manhattan. I don't think you can get a better location than the New Yorker Hotel. It's it literally is like right next to Penn Station, right next to Madison Square Garden, and actually not even around the corner from the Hammerstein Ballroom. It's it's next to it, so. Um, you know, it's a uh, it's attached to the TikTok Diner. Um, you know, all of these, all of these amazing landmarks. Um, yeah, I mean, I I used to work right around there in Midtown Manhattan, and it's not my favorite part of the city. But if you <laughs> if you're talking about easily accessible, very visible, a lot of foot traffic, very close to public transportation, it is a um, yeah, it's it's about as perfect a location as you can get. Um, and this is also, I guess we should remind people, um, this was not technically Ring of Honor's first New York show. Obviously they did the Elks Lodge in, in, um, for the first year anniversary show. They did that Empire State Showdowns. I forget somewhere else in New York State. I forget the city. I think like clo- closer to, it's like upstate, like closer to like Rochester or Buffalo area. I, I forgot to look up what, yeah. what metro area that's in. But, but, this but, is but, the but, but as I mentioned, but as I mentioned before, it's like, like when you're talking about like Empire State Showdown, that's like an enti- that's like in an entirely different world. Like that's so far away from New York City comparatively. The uh, the Elks Log show was in Queens, um, but like being in Midtown Manhattan is like like that. That really is like prime prime real estate for a uh, for an entertainment event. And even with both those shows, we're talking shows that took place in 2003. We're well into 2005 by this point. So it had been a long time since Ring of Honor had ever been in New York State proper. And they've only had only been a couple times. And like you were saying, you know, now you are right in kind of the heart of it, you know, right next to a bunch of well-known locations, big in wrestling, you know, MSG, Hammerstein. So it definitely did have a big, even though it wasn't technically the first show in New York City or even New York or New York State, it definitely did kind of did have that big kind of like special we're kind of moving on up feel I felt like. Yeah, the and they, yeah, and they treated the show like a really big deal too. Um and the other thing that uh, the observer made to note that the crowd of 750 fans in the New Yorker hotel wasn't actually they call it an overflow crowd and they said that was a big success. So even though you might not consider 750 fans to be like, you know, Ring of Honor at, at this point had done a few over crowds over a thousand but for the the confines of the new yorker hotel that they were in which looked like a fairly cramped confines it seemed like they filled it pretty good um going to uh the pro okay the the the, the other thing we have to talk about before we get into the show is the ring of honor at this time for the show got their biggest piece of promotion ever up to this point unfortunately i could not find it online i don't know if it has a little piece of it have made it to dvds but i'll just go into the pw insider recap of it uh pw insider at the time wrote 
Ring of Honor will have se- will have several of their stars appearing on on WB Channel 11's morning newscast tomorrow morning to promote their New York debut at the New Yorker Hotel on May 7th. Ring of Honor champion Austin Aries, Prince Nana, Lacey, and several others will be appearing in the outdoor segments on 42nd Street and 2nd Avenue with Ring of Honor's ring set up. The segments are scheduled for 6.15 a.m., 7.15 a.m., and 8.15 a.m. This is really good publicity for the company. The next day, someone wrote a recap of what happened. Uh, during the new cast's opening greetings, they cut to reporter Julie Chen, who people might know. She went on to much bigger fame, you know, hosting Big Brother and among other things, being on, I think, what's that show? The Talk or The Chew or whatever. The, the, the talk show that uh, Sharon Osbourne just got in huge trouble on. Um, anyway, so the recap continues. Who was Julie Chen was bouncing inside the ring as Ring of Honor champion Austin Aries, brandishing his title belt, entered the ring. When they went to their first commercial break, they showed Aries and Prince Nana arguing in the ring. So then at the 5.15 a.m. segment, the newscasters introduced the segment involving a new wrestling promotion, Ring of Honor. Aries was spying with Asriel as Julie Chen introduced them by name and noted that they and 30 other wrestlers would be appearing at Ring of Honor tomorrow in New York City. Low-key, wearing street clothes, hopped in the ring and interrupted the sparring. Key got in Aries' face saying, Hello, champ. This Saturday, you're in my backyard. He slapped Aries in the face. Aries grabbed him in a double leg takedown, and they rolled around the mat with Prince Nana and Asriel trying to pull them apart. Julie Chen sold it like it wasn't supposed to happen and was scared for a moment, then plugged she would be back with more Ring of Honor later. At 6.15 a.m., Austin Aries and Asriel were grappling in the background as Chen questioned Prince Nana about, quote, that guy who came in off the street earlier, unquote. Nana explained he was low-key and not someone you wanted to mess with. And for more on the situation earlier, be sure to attend Ray of Honor's debut at the New Yorker Hotel tomorrow, giving the cross streets of the venue. They went to a video package of Chen training in the ring from earlier today with Aries. They went to commercial plugging ringofhonorwrestling.com. Then at 7.15 a.m., when the newscasters introduced the Ring of Honor segment, they referred to the company as Ring of Horror. Oops. They showed more footage of Austin Aries and Asriel grappling, including a top rope stomp onto Aries. They went to footage shot from earlier in the day of Julie Chan wrestling with Lacey. They plugged the Ring of Honor event again, as well as the Ring of Honor website, while Chen danced around holding the Ring of Honor title belt. Finally, the 848 segment, I, I don't know if that's a typo or if it actually took place at 848 this time. Ring of Honor champion Austin Aries versus Asriel. Asriel chopped Aries. Aries caught Asriel in a fireman's carry into a running forward roll. Aries went to the top and hit a 450 splash, although the cameras missed the 450. Aries got the pin with Nana courting the pin, counting the pinfall. They again showed the package featuring Julie Chen versus Lacey. After it aired, Chen asked Aries if she could keep the belt, and he said no, because I'm the champ. Chen tried to plug the website and got flustered, so Aries did it. They again plugged the show tomorrow. So, this was considered, like, a fairly big deal at the time. Again, Ring of Honor would, um, put this clips of this on the DVD, try and say, hey, you know, we were on a, you know, a network morning show. Uh, Sapolsky talked to the Torch about it on the Pro Wrestling Torch uh, newsletter. Sapolsky was thrilled with the media publicity Ring of Honor received heading into the Manhattan debut, the most mainstream media exposure the promotion has ever received. Quote, the television exposure on WB on Friday really just put everything over the top. The low-key Austin Aries thing on the show really created a buzz among our fans and set the stage beautifully for things on the card. I also had a couple people email and said that they went to the show because of that exposure. 
so it definitely paid off. We will be able to use the footage on our DVDs, too, so that will look great on DVD. So, uh, do you guys remember this? I, I vaguely remember some of this, including just the fact that, you know, Loki had been, the storyline had been, he had been suspended for months, and so that, you know, basically letting you know a couple days early, I, I, you know, that's a good idea without outright saying it's good he's gonna be there you basically knew at that point loki's gonna be there and it was uh julie chen with her i wish those clips were still easily accessible i guess if if you have the the dvd they are so aaron did you were you able to check yeah, it out? yeah. i i remember this happening i think like we i think i taped this like i have a memory of like watching this on vcr um because I, it was like such a big deal on the forums that you know Ring of Honor was going to be on. You know, I guess it was like Pix Eleven or W. You know, yeah, WP yeah, 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 yeah. It's like the Pix Eleven, and just being, you know, I mean, one thing to think about that I think is like an interesting thing is it really feels like things are happening in this in this time period in Ring of Honor, like with, with the show being in Manhattan, being as big as it was, and you have you know they're on TV, and then like after this, it's kind of like. We're a couple months away from the summer of punk and it really feels like there's like a lot of momentum behind this company. And like one thing that I'm curious to continue listening to the show and sort of see if their answers to it was like, why didn't this promotion blow up? Like it feels like it feels like there's all this momentum, but like we know in retrospect that it's like it's not like they start, you know, they get up to crowds of like 2000 at any point. Right. It's sort of like the the sort of popularity of the company kind of like stays the same despite kind of like this snowball of momentum does that sound right yeah and i wonder if also it's part of just the way ring of honor was constructed this time like when you think about this all right they get big you know for for their era you know mainstream attention on getting regular segments on a on a wb morning show but at the same time like the main thrust of that, if you so, let's say you watch that and you're curious, you know, like I want to give this Ring of Honor a shot. I'm not sure if I want to, if I'm really going to be into it, but I'll give it a shot. Your options at this point were either to buy a ticket to the New Yorker and go see the show live, which is you know can be a big ask for someone if they you know are kind of on the fence to begin with, or go to RingOfHonor.com and buy a fifteen to twenty dollar DVD and wait for it to arrive in the mail and then watch it. And you know, compared to if a promotion was just on free TV. I feel like publicity, you know, it would it would probably have translated to more fans if they if the end of those plugs could have been something like and tune in to you know your local Sinclair affiliate or whatever you know Saturday at 10 p.m. and watch Ring of Honor as opposed to if you're mildly curious about this now you have to immediately if you got to pay to you know to even try this which for some people you know that's going to be a barrier to entry right there I think I I, I also think that you know I mean first of all I I do think it it did Im- Increase in popularity. Like, I mean, by, you know, by 2008, uh, 2009, they were, you know, getting pretty decent sized crowds at that Hammerstein ballroom, you know, on a, you know, several times a year basis, um, which I don't think they, they, you know, they couldn't have done that in 2005. I think you know they they uh, they, they increased their attendance in Philadelphia a lot once the CZW angle started those wrestlemania weekends always drew really big crowds you know and kind of started a tradition of indie wrestling on wrestlemania weekend so i i do think that you know they 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 at least marginally got more popular but i think a lot of it was just the time period i i think you know wrestling was not a like a, a property that tv stations wanted in 
in that era. You know, you had you had TNA. They they were able to get their their stuff on uh, on Spike not not too long after this. You had WWE about to go back to uh, USA, and um, and really no one else wanted to air a wrestling company. At least that's how I remember it. Um, I guess you you had WSX shortly after this, but it, it just it just seems like the the timing wasn't right for this to be like an ECW level uh, thing. Also, they would have had to change a lot, you know, like in terms of what they presented. Uh, I think Meltzer used to used to make a big point about this in terms of um, when you have something like WWE, which has such high production values and regular fans are used to that, they're not going to settle for, you know, ROH or even ECW level production values. Uh, it's just that you, you have to change things dramatically. I, uh, I just think, I just think it was a different era. Especially because with like ECW, they had lower production values, and that was viewed by many as a negative against them. But even with ECW, they kind of made it part of their image and their charm. Like, you know, we're kind of this scuzzier, dirtier, grimier, like more legit wrestling promotion. Ring of Honor, the bad production values was not like part of the identity. It was just something you accepted to go with the great shows. You, you know, you didn't accept the the horrible white balancing or, or the, you know, the, the guys in cramped little backstage areas for promos or things like that it it was it was not part of the charm of ring of honor i i do i do agree with you aaron though in terms of the two you know the the second promotion in in america was was tna and you know if you wanted to present a company to a broader audience between the two of them you know you'd think that roh would be uh, would do a better job of exciting and hooking people um Overall, at least over the course of a few years, uh, 2005 actually was one of the better years for for TNA in terms of like how good they were. But it, maybe the, maybe actually their best year now that I think <laughs> about it. But um, but yeah, I, I I don't know that, that I, I agree with that. TNA had the TV deal, they had the parent company, and uh, and you know they had Jeff Jarrett, which which is really all you need. He's yeah, the chosen you can't beat him. Yeah. yeah. That but, makes sense. Um, Thank you for <laughs> answering my inquiry in, uh, in a bit of a. A digression, I suppose. No, I, I think that's a, a great point, too, about, like, I, I was thinking watching the show, and, like, Matt, we've been obviously watching every show. I felt like the first quarter of 2004 in Ring of Honor, you know, like, there was some good, it was not a bad quarter, but there was definitely, as you've pointed out, a lot of, like, angles that went nowhere and stop starts, and it, it wasn't the best quarter but i feel like like going to uh aaron your point like i feel like with this show it definitely feels like a switch has been flipped and it's like things are heat are like not even heating up like they're back to being hot like i'm really looking forward to the next few shows and like you point out the summer of punk is coming and i really do feel it is like really this like the last show uh that we covered um stalemate i felt like was kind of setting up a lot of the things for this show and then with this show it's all of a sudden just like bam here's a big show the next show we're gonna you know blow off the punk i mean the uh danielson homicide feud in a steel cage in the next show after that we're gonna blow off the punk ray feud in a steel cage we're gonna be going back doing uh show in buffalo then we're gonna do a show in new york you know then the summer or a punk like it's just you know whatever they've been saving up starts getting you know every show now starts pretty much starts being kind of a something unique or novel to it for the most part and they had a manhattan show three months in a row which is pretty wild thinking back because you know they don't use that in this era they don't usually run markets 
that often. Um, but yeah, they, I guess be, they, they, they went back to the New Yorker hotel in July. They went to a place in the theater district in, um, in June to coincide with, uh, ECW one night stand. So that, I, that's an interesting choice too. And they, they lucked out in that their Manhattan debut was such, you know, really went off so well. And uh, I guess this guy's this show was so big, all the stars were there. As Gabe tells us on commentary during the show, but I'll just read it off from the Pro Wrestling Torch. Rap star Redman was there. Um, so was Jay Z. Except um, the an honorable mention guys talked about this. Like during the show, Gabe is talking about you know um, you know Redman and Jay Z and all these big stars are there. Well, apparently there was like a show happening, some kind of other event at another part of the New Yorker hotel that those people were at. They were not there specifically to see uh, Manhattan Mayhem Ring of Honor's event. But all uh, the one person that was there actually was Paul London was apparently uh, backstage uh, at the show. So Paul London oh, returning back. Oh, to, oh uh, wait, you skipped over the Jay Z thing too fast because <laughs> I like yeah I heard Gabe say that I know Red, him saying Redman was there. I was like okay maybe Redman. Was yeah there right. I was like oh maybe Redman was there. Yeah. I was like, oh, I guess Redman, Redman was there, right? Because that's like, it feels so esoteric that you right. wouldn't make it up. Right. But when he said, like, J- but when he said Jay-Z is in the building, I like, immediately... I would have known, yeah. right? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I was immediately like, okay, he must... Like, it must be like a loophole. Like, he was in the building because it's a whole hotel. <laughs> but, like, not... He was not at the... Like, yeah, the, the, the New York Hotel is like a big attached, like, complex. There, there's, there was no way that Jay-Z was going to be at an ROH show in 2005 and it wouldn't be treated like a huge deal. Um, that you wouldn't even see him, right. you know, for a second. They wouldn't get a shot with him, a quick, like, endorsement yeah. from him. If he was that big a fan to show up, you yeah, know, exactly. nothing. It reminded me, though, of us in SummerSlam 98 when they showed Method Man in the crowd. And I, and I was like, well, that's, I mean, that's what they would have done if Jay-Z was there. <laughs> Jay-Z was really famous in 2005. Even then, yeah. yeah. So um, we open the show finally. We can get to the DVD proper. We open outside with a shot of the New Yorker Hotel, the site of today's show. We then see Colt Cabana standing outside in the busy streets. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is all shot with no white balance. Everything is dark and incredibly blue. We were just talking production values. This is one of the great examples of Ring of Honor frequently not white balancing the camera. So I was trying to figure out if this was dusk, if it was a white balance thing, if it was both. (laughs) Like, did they just film it at the absolute worst time? Because it it definitely... I mean, it looks like it's dusk. Like it, it, it might, it might have been in the middle of the day. In which case, that would be really upsetting. But yeah, it definitely, it definitely had a dusky look to it. Colt says, and I quote: "This is a line that only a guy like Colt Cabana could get away with. Look at me." Look how hip, look how cool I am. Uh, someone waves behind Colt as he launches into a street side. Good times, great memories. He dedicates it to Nigel McGinnis. Uh, Colt asks random people on the street what they think of British people. He asks a guy who has the most amazing hair I've ever seen what he thinks about Nigel McGinnis. It's clear this guy is not part of the uh, – he, he's not a, he's not a plan. He's just a stranger. And the guy says something like, uh, I think that sounds like a British name. Um, then Colt Badgers, another guy who calls him fucking annoying. So uh, just Colt being wacky and annoying and, and yeah. getting a real – what I would describe as a real taste of New York. Yeah, I would say like Colt, you know, he, he was incredibly enthusiastic. This was energetic and entertaining. But I have to say he did seem very annoying and – 
I would have thought he had better, would have like better follow-ups and comebacks than this. Like a guy just says, like, what do you think of Nigel McGuinness? He says, I think he has a British sounding name. And then Colt just says, a British sounding name. See, they love you, Nigel. And it, you know, like I would be like, yeah, well, you, well, sir, congratulations. He is, he is in fact British. So good job. He probably came up with that name because it sounds British as a matter of fact. So, um, so Aaron, were you outside watching Colt Cabana film, the good times, great memories? Yes. Yeah, you were. Yeah. You, you remember? Yes. Yeah, 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 dude. So, um, like, uh, how blue was it outside? <laughs> it was not that blue, but um, it was just incredible because it was like this is my first uh, live wrestling show that I've ever been to. Oh, very first Last ever. Year. Not not even just first yeah. ROH, but first wrestling. No, my of first any kind. pro wrestling show. How old? How, how how old were you? I was 16 years old. Okay. Wow. And, uh, my dad drove me and Alec Hubel and Pete Labazetta into the city. And, like, we get to the building, and Colt Cabana is, like, shooting a promo um, right outside. And uh, on the DVD, you can hear at the end of the promo, someone's like, I love Colt Cabana, and that's my friend Pete. And, like, afterwards, he came and ran and gave my friend Alec a hug. Um, so awesome. it was just like, it was like, wow, wow the stars are out in New York City. Because, <laughs> like, as a 16-year-old kid, like, Colt Cabana was, like, such an appealing character, right? Like, and I, I still enjoy his his act, like, as an adult. But, like, I think his act is, like, sort of specifically tailored to, to like, a 16-year-old boy. And he was, like, the coolest, funniest guy you could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, so was this, did you go to all of the uh, New Yorker hotel shows, all three, three of them that they had? I think so. Yes. If there were only three, then I went to all three because I went to this one, Escape from New York, and uh, Joe versus Kobashi. So I was at I was at all three of those shows. Nice. I was um, at I was at two of the three of them because uh, I so like this this was the show that got me into ROH, but it not until after because I was I was still upset. This was this was either the weekend of or the weekend before my college graduation. So I knew ROH had a big show in New York City, but I didn't actually see it until it came out on DVD after I actually went to the next Manhattan show, The Future Is Now. Did you go to that one? The- no, no, I didn't go to that one. I'm watching. That's where I am because I started watching the shows when you got about like when you guys started doing the podcast. And then I over time, I was watching them along with you and then I got a little bit ahead. So I'm midway through The Future Is Now. Um, in my ring of honor watching. Nice. Yeah. So that was my first ROH show. And then right after that, like I got this DVD cause I really liked it, but I was like, okay, let me see more. And, and Gabe was like really pushing Manhattan mayhem. And I watched it and I was like, holy shit, I can never miss another one of these ever again. Yes. Like, I, I yeah. had such yeah. like regret of not being at this show and it's like, yeah, it's so cool that you got to go. Uh, yeah. It's it, so, so you, so you got a ride and I actually have to say, you know, even though, this was, uh, you know, a really very accessible public transportation area, and I went to a lot of these shows by subway. So I was still living in in Staten Island in 2005 once I got back from college with my parents. So I and I had I had a job at the uh, at the mall for a little while until I like okay. got things going. And so and I so I'd work on like a Saturday, and I would get off of work at like six. And I would just like run to my car and drive all the way to Midtown Manhattan. But it really only took like maybe like maybe half an hour. And I always, whenever I did that, I would always find parking. Like for whatever reason, like oh, wow. that, that time was, and like right outside, it was the only time I ever had to like pay for parking was um, Joe versus Kobashi. And 
I because I, I just I, I think I had to work like till maybe like six forty five or something, and I just didn't even have time to look for parking, and I ran in. But yeah, this is a, this is a very convenient location, not just for trains, but even for cars when you uh, considering it's Manhattan. But anyway, yeah, I digress. You guys talking about well, Matt every time you talk about like oh the trouble or or the ease like like living in Western Canada the idea that like you oh it's a half an hour to see Manhattan Mayhem or shows like <laughs> this like oh really because uh, here like if I wanted to see something like there was times I thought like when I was younger like oh I could see Brian Danielson if I wanted to drive six and a half hours each way and it was like can't talk my parents into that so. <laughs> Thank God damn it. <laughs> well, no, don't it, you know just you know don't feel too bad. If I had taken like public transportation from the Staten Island Mall to Manhattan Mayhem, it would probably have taken me like an hour and 20 minutes. So, oh, you know. oh, <laughs> But uh next we go to a different kind of horror. We are in the ring. Uh it is showed it, no wait, sorry. I skipped ahead a whole segment. No, um we cut to Samoa Joe. He's in the ring, but it's the empty New Yorker ho- it's in the it's already the ring is already set up in the New Yorker hotel, but it's before the show, so the building's empty. Joe is waiting for Jay Lethal to show up. Jay quickly does show up. Joe and he thanks Joe for turning his life around with that pep talk Joe gave him all those months ago about needing to get serious, drop the hydro name, blah blah blah. Blah. Jay says Joe made him into who he is today. Joe then at this point gets angry at the thank you and shoves him. He's angry that Joe, just that the fact that Jay is thanking him. He's saying, you know, hey, if have, has anything I taught you gotten through to you? If you if you're thanking me on a night that I'm looking to take your title from you, and Joe then says. If you've learned anything from me, you'll do whatever it takes to keep this t- your title. Jay then pie faces Joe, shoves him into the corner, holds him there by the face, says Joe underestimates him. Jay says he's going to show Joe just what he taught him, and after tonight, he's going to tell Joe where to meet him from now on instead of vice versa. I really like the idea of this promo, as as we've seen a lot with early Jay Lethal. His acting chops were still not particularly good. They would come a long way to the point they are now so he didn't quite sell it great it's hard to really sell that you're intimidating joe but i did like the idea that joe keeps pushing this guy and there'll be a moment like that in the early on in their match tonight too and then jay's like well fuck you you know i'll i'll stand up to you now and i like the idea of the execution maybe it's 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 hard to uh stand up to samoa joe i imagine to do that in a really compelling believable way because he has such a strong presence and character yeah, um, I, 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 agree, I agree with you exactly. This was a really good segment, mostly in theory, and uh, the delivery of Jay Lethal was, uh, you know, it was it had a ways to go, but it, uh, <laughs> but Joe was really good, and it got it told the story that they needed to tell. I, I, I think that was a, uh, I would still give this the segment a thumbs up overall. Absolutely. Um- then next, we uh, cut to the ring, and it's showtime. Everyone's in the building. Bobby and Cruz introduces the first match. It's a three-way tag team match where the losing team must disband. The ring crew express enter first, and they're immediately attacked by the Carnage crew, who are returning for the first time after months of their stipulated suspension. For those who don't remember or haven't keeping up with the podcast, uh, they lost. They took the direct fall in that big scramble cage uh, match that a bunch of teams in it a few shows ago. With the steps of that match was whoever directly took the fall in that match, that team would be out for, I forget if it was 60 or 90 days, but a certain period of time. So this is their first appearance back since then. Um, 
they carnage plex done and they immediately afterwards uh no immediately after after the carnage plex done loke tries to pull down his hoodie because it's come up and shown off his gut and then right after that in like the same like 10 seconds he stumbles backwards and trips over done and falls on his ass and the crowd laughs at him and i felt like i felt really bad for him because it just that whole 10 se- second sequence where it's like your, your big return angle after a couple of months out and just all of that happens is just I can imagine they, they, good reco- they had a good recovery though, because DeVito and Loke at this point then do their combo crucifix bomb neck breaker spot on Marcos and they do it. So he lands on top of Dunn. Uh, they get a couple of hubcaps are thrown in the ring. They do the hubcap concerto on Marcos. They follow that up with a spike pile driver on Dunn doing it off the apron through a ringside table. If you watch this, Dunn does a incredible open mouth, like, Oh my God face upside down while he's in the pile driver before it hits. And, um, the crowd chants, holy shit, as the refs run to the ringside to check on Don and Marcos. Loke gets on the mic and he cuts a promo that I half understand through the sound system. He calls he calls he and uh, DeVito fat and uh, drunk and pissed off. Loke says Ring of Honor and the wrestling industry can kiss their ass. Um, I thought the funny part about that was as um, Loke is saying Ring of Honor can kiss his ass, you can clearly see DeVito is wearing a Ring of Honor brand t-shirt. So, um, well, I guess the t-shirt doesn't necessarily tell you where your loyalties lie. But um, Bobby Cruz then says, as a result of the attack, the Ring Crew Express is now out of the match, and it's a two-on-two tag where the losing team must disband. So, ironically, the card crew, they hate Dunn and Marcos now, but they kind of just saved them from possibly having to disband as a tag team. And we are left with a losing team must disband tag team match. Lacey's Angels of Deranged and Izzy, with Cheech in their corner, defeated Azrael and Dixie in 10 minutes, 14 seconds, when Deranged pinned Azrael after he hit his weird Canadian destroyer Rana piledriver thing, which he used on the last show. Um, Matt, very similar match as we saw these teams have last show, except there was actually one quarter difference because the, that match had Cheech in the place of Izzy. This time we get, uh, we get Izzy in the place of Cheech, but... Uh, what do you think about this match? Well, I want to talk about the uh, the Carnage Crew segment first because I I thought it was pretty noteworthy in that. Um, and I actually wanted to ask Aaron about this. Um, so this to me was the segment where you were like, "Oh wow, this is going to be like a big deal show." Because you know the Carnage Crew coming back, I feel like in most places on most shows would not feel this electric. You know, like, didn't didn't it feel like, like, just a huge ass deal? Like, like, oh my god, the Carnage crew are back. They do this, like, big, you know, they, they're attacking the Ring Crew Express. They put them through a table and it just feels like this gigantic angle, like, that everyone's been waiting for. And, you know, as somebody who was watching this, uh, who was, you know, not following the, the month, you know, the, the show to show, you know, flow of ROH, I just assumed it was really big when I watched it. And then you, you know, you see them on other shows and it's like, oh, actually, it's like a lower mid card thing and they're you know they're out of shape and one of them fell over the other guy but it just felt like a huge ass deal and like aaron was this the first thing that happened on the live card yeah as far as i can remember and this is like yeah it's a great angle and i think that like in the building it was kind of one of those vibes um because you're packed in and the vibe was like yeah it was electric and it was sort of one of those wrestling shows this was my first ever wrestling show but now i know that there are shows where you get into the crowd and you can just tell that the people are there and they're excited and they're there to make it a good show. Um, like I think sort of like the Joey Janela, the first like one or two Joey Janela spring breaks crowds were like that. Or if you go to a PWG Bola, the crowd is like that where you're like, wow, like everyone's just pumped to be here. And it's like town Manhattan, like, you know, 
And it's just a great angle because like the Ring Crew Express music plays. So everyone's pumped up. They've got their like classic rock, whatever, their 80s rock thing going. And then bam, like the Carnage crew just comes out and cuts them off and kicks their asses and and cuts what I think is a pretty good promo. I think that like I actually have enjoyed the Carnage crew more on rewatch than I did at the time. I, I think like particularly Loke is a good promo. The stuff about like, you know, no one's missing us on the message boards is like. A, a real thing and the crowd just yeah right like the crowd elevated this angle and you know it was hot yeah and uh, uh, sorry oh sorry matt i was just gonna say um and the other thing is it's kind of a throwback to gabe would often do the these kinds of openings when they were first in a new market where you know it's kind of reminiscent of even the very the opening of the very first ring of honor show ever where you have a tag team come out and then kind of another tag team just destroys them and of course big progress because this time it wasn't a woman involved but like you know i did kind of get a little bit in a in a, in a good way like you know, the hit squad coming in and laying out a team vibes from this segment, just, you know, you're not expecting it. And all of a sudden there's this big giant beat down to start off a show. Yeah. And I, and I think this was better than that for, for one, it was not offensive in the same way, but also it like, I don't know the, the crowd reacted better. The spots were better. The, uh, you know, the ring crew express are great bump takers. And, um, yeah, I just, it felt like an ECW show and an ECW crowd in like, arena crowd in like the best way you know like it just it just like it just it's one of the hottest starts to a show that you know that i can think of honestly and it involved the carnage crew beating up the ring crew express so that's that's surprising uh to me anyway um but uh as far as the uh the uh, izzy and derange versus Azrael and dixie match um yeah uh this is different than the first two matches um you know that we watched between them because they actually just kind of did the match that you always would have expected them to do, which is not quite a scramble because they did, you know, do tags and things like that, but they ju- it was moves. It was a moves match. They just, they just did a bunch of moves, and that, that's pretty much what I wrote down. It's moves, but the, the crowd was reacting big to all of it. Like, the crowd was just so on fire, and I think that, you know, I think that they did a really good job but I also think that, again, in front of a different crowd, this probably would not have come off as as well. I think it came off, like, really, really good. Like, just like a really good indie spot fest of a match. And I I don't... I, I, don't, I, just, I just think that the crowd probably put it over the top. Um, for one thing... Um, Izzy and Derange, they have, um, you know, they're wearing their, their ties. Um, meanwhile, Dixie and Asriel have matching gear. So that just means they definitely won't break up tonight. Wink. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, besides talking about how Jay-Z was in the building, um, they, they also say that Lacey wasn't there because she has a very important business meeting with P. Diddy. And, um, and Maxim Magazine was there, which really was a very 2005 reference to me. Um, <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, just, it was just a lot of re- like fun moves. Um, like, uh, Dixie and Azriel doing a slam leg drop, leg drop combo on Izzy, on, uh, Izzy where, where Azriel does the leg drop off the top rope. Um, the, uh, at one point Azriel rips off Izzy's shirt so he could chop him, but the, the crowd does not react like like it's Jeff Hardy taking off his shirt. It's not Izzy does not get the same same reaction. Um, Izzy and Derange do like a double team brainbuster on Azrael, but Gabe calls it like a split leg from Izzy, which I was like, what? 
that's like a brain buster. I, I don't I didn't understand that call. Um, uh, let me see. What are some of the other big moves? Uh, they do the they do the uh, Doomsday Ace Crusher, but for some reason, uh, Deranged tries to pin Azrael with only one foot, which so they didn't really treat that like the uh, the near fall that it could have been. Um, Azrael went for a top rope Rana on Deranged, but Deranged low blowed him, knocked him down. Uh, and crotched him, and then Azrael hit a superplex, which to me was like the most basic match of made the basic move of the entire match was a superplex. Um, but you know, like whenever ever guys are down, the crowd is clapping big time. They they do a hot tag segment, and Dixie hits like a really low slap German supl- uh, snap German suplex on Deranged. Then Dixie holds Deranged in like a camel clutch, so Azrael can double stomp him. But Izzy pushes Dixie out of position and. Azriel stomps the back of Dixie's head. Um, so Azriel double stomps Izzy, and now it's down to Azriel and Deranged. And Azriel just goes nuts with him with kicks and a, and a low drop kick. And Deranged comes out of nowhere with the uh, that reverse Rana into a pile driver thing that they that's like that's what Prezak called it, like yeah. he did at stalemate, and gets the win out of nowhere. Um, but yeah, it was just, I'm like I said, it was just, it was a moves match. Um, but the crowd was so hot for it that it felt, it felt like a really good match to me. Aaron. So, uh, what did you think? I guess then knowing that this was your first live wrestling show, I guess that would mean this was the first live wrestling match you've ever seen. Does it, does it feel a weird special place in your heart just because for the rest of your life, the first live wrestling match you ever saw was Dixie and I mean, deranged and Izzy versus Asriel and Dixie. You know, I, I sort of this isn't one of the matches from the show that stands out as much in my brain, even though it was the first. Um, but this was a really, you know, this was a fun match, right? I, they did their move. It was, I think that, and in the crowd, I mean, yeah, the crowd is sick. Everyone's having a great time. I think the Azrael like shine section where he does the really like stiff kicks and stuff is sort of like you know they're getting ready to try to make him a thing in a way that you know obviously sort of in hindsight didn't quite work out. Um, but in that moment it, it looked and felt good and you got kind of this sort of like no nonsense, kicky guy, low key vibe from, you know, sort of like t- 2002 low key vibe from him in that, that, that section of the match. And, um, yeah, it was good. I mean, I, the one thing that I thought watching it back was kind of like, it's sort of in between like a moves, like scramble and like a regular match. And sort of one thing that stuck, stuck out to me was that like, it's clear that the Lacey's Angels team is the, like, heel team, but it's not really worked. Like, you know, there's not, like, a heat section where the heels beat up the baby faces. It's kind of just, like, there are times where it feels like the the baby faces are kind of, like, beating down on the heels and what would be what you would think of as, like, a heat section. Um, but overall, a fun and good match with, you know, a lot of cool moves, which is all you can ask for. I didn't like this match quite as much as either of you, but I guess this will tip my hand about what I felt about the show. I would say this was my least favorite match on the show, and I would still say this was an above average, like very enjoyable tag match. And I would say like this is as bad as it gets on this show, in my opinion. But um, Matt, the one thing I would disagree with what you said is you said you felt like this was kind of different than their previous matches. I thought this match 
was shockingly similar to the Cheech and Deranged versus Azrael and Dixie match we just saw at a stalemate. It had, I felt like it had, it did have big spots, but I felt like a lot of the big spots were also in that match, right down to like the Doomsday Ace Crusher, the Double Stomp Camel Clutch spot. Although, like you mentioned, this time it it goes wrong, but I, I, it even has the exact same finish, which is Deranged pinning Azrael clean with the weird like Canadian Destroyer Rana pile driver thing, and. um it has the same basic structure where um, Asriel is the face in peril. He eventually makes a hot tag to Dixie. Deranged wins clean over Asriel. I, I found it was like very rarely in Ring of Honor do you see a match this similar to another recent match because it's a product where the idea is that some people are going to be watching every single show. And I, I thought it was – and that kind of threw me off a little bit even though this probably is the best version of that kind of match these guys had. But overall, I did enjoy it. Um I think the booking, like, I guess this, this is, I mean, it's not the absolute end for um, uh, Asriel and uh, Dixie, obviously, although they're not too, none of these guys are too long for the world in Ring of Honor. But I did think the, the like, I guess uh, my question for both of you, because I know, um, Aaron, you've been keeping, you were watching these shows too. Um, what do you think of, like, how Dixie and Asriel were booked in these in this run? Because obviously, um, you can't push everybody. It's not like there wasn't a ton of other talent that was deserving of spots as well. But like when you look at the, the, the special K breakup angle, I think Dixie and Azrael maybe got one win, which was to win the rights to the special K name, which they immediately said they didn't want. And the other team that lost it said, Oh, we have a better name anyway. Then the feud inexplicably continued on and they lost the final two matches with Azrael, the guy that, you know, clearly if you were watching the shows, around this time it was clear from the commentary and the booking that gabe you know of all of these four guys azrael was the guy gabe kind of had eyes for maybe trying to push in the future and he will give us a, a somewhat a, of an attempt to it in the coming months but yeah he's the guy this feud ends with him as a face losing clean to a heel in two straight tag matches that end the feud basically and uh, and even right down to like they never used um, ring, had their own ring music for most of this feud, and the other and the heels did. It just like it really felt like this feud did not serve do those guys any favors. I felt like, yeah, I I agree, right? And that was what I was thinking too. Watching this back was just sort of like I was so surprised, and I just watched the show a couple of months ago, but I was surprised again that Azrael not. I knew they lost the match, but I was surprised that he took the fall. Um, because right, like, you know, and I think even into like the winter of 2006, they're like giving him singles matches against, you know, I think like Austin Aries and Nigel McGuinness, like they, they tried to do something with him and and you're right. Like they just, they just look like, just like nerds who lose matches throughout this feud. Um, when it was clear that like, they didn't really take the guys in the Lacey's Angels stable seriously. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know what the what the plan was. Uh, it feels like they wanted to do more with Deranged, at least, also, and I don't know why that, you know, that abruptly stopped. Um, you know, I don't know if that was personal stuff or professional stuff, but you know, my assumption was just like they wanted to do more with Lacey's Angels. I mean, I mean, it was a new gimmick featuring you know one of their the big new like promoted characters, Lacey. You know, they like they did use her a lot over the next few years, so they obviously had bigger ideas for her and so 
I, you know, I'd be interested to hear, you know, how much they were really thinking about where they were going in the future with Lacey's Angels at this point. Um, you're right; it is kind of weird looking back that Azrael took the uh, took the fall over Dixie, but it's not weird to me that they lost um, because, like I said, I, I just kind of thought that they 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 did want to do more with with Izzy and Deranged, or especially Deranged. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, they, they did a terrible job with the good guy version of Special K. I, I mean, you know, like you said, the no music thing, them just looking sad all the time. Like, it was, like, it was really, really bad booking. Um, that's why I, I was impressed with the match, because it was so over. Like, yeah, a lot of the moves were the same as in that stalemate match, but to me, the, the vibe of the match was totally different. The pacing of the match felt very different. Um, you know, it just felt a little bit, it felt pretty electric. Um, and that match just felt like a lower mid card match. So I, so that's, that's a major difference to me between the, uh, stalemate match and the Manhattan mayhem match. I guess the last thing I want to point out is just, uh, Lacey is not on this show. So, which is kind of weird knowing that she was on the uh, WB segments on the day before on Friday. PD called the mid PD called uh, P Diddy, excuse me, called the meeting, um, (laughs) at the last minute. So I don't know if she just had an obligation the next day or or what, but it is weird that like she she was in New York obviously to do the WB segments and then she's not on the show. But just a little detail. But that brings us to the second match on the show. Nigel McGuinness defeated Colt Cabana via pinfall in 11 minutes, 51 seconds with a victory roll. Uh, Aaron, we were still in the early stages of this feud when it was just getting going, but uh, I was shocked by um like. Nigel McGuinness at this point always seemed to be a bit more over than his push, but especially in New York, you know, they hadn't been in New York State proper at, at this point for, for since he had been in Ring of Honor as a regular, really. And the crowd's really into Nigel, I would say as much, if not more, than Colt Cabana, which was kind of shocking to me. Uh, what do you think about the match and just, I guess, I guess Nigel's reaction? Yeah, um, well, I think that Nigel's reaction is coming off of the first match that they had during the... Um, I guess the third anniversary night two the the match that they or what the match that they had in Dayton in in February right yeah. um like was really well regarded for sort of like all the trickery and chain wrestling and stuff and and so it felt like everyone was kind of like oh yeah like this is the rematch from that great that sort of like that sort of that Dayton show was thought of as being sort of like a sneaky classic show right where it's like everything's good throughout the show um sort of like well regarded um and so i think people were 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 high on him coming off of that um i didn't love this match i felt like it was kind of derivative of the first match and i felt like you know you said this match was only 11 minutes but it felt longer it just felt like um i know that they were telling their story of nigel getting frustrated and then it and ends in kind of this sort of accidental but is it accidental um you know needed the groin and they're they're doing their part and sort of advancing the story and sort of um nigel's you know slow slow burn um and i just uh but it just felt like it was just a little too much of the cutesy stuff for me i think a little too much of a guy getting on the other guy's back and you know colt cabana you know crawling away and it was just like it felt like that that sort of stuff. There were just like a couple too many of those spots for me, and I was just sort of like, okay, well, like let's let's get to the point here. Um, so that was my review of the match. 
I liked it um, more than you, uh, but I can completely see why someone would, would have that opinion. I, I, I do agree that this match was another match that was, you know, a lot very similar to their previous Ring of Honor match that happened not many shows earlier. But maybe just because their style was so unique for Ring of Honor at this time, I was more than happy to get like another dose of that. And I don't think it was necessarily a copy move for move, although it was, again, it was much like that first match. It, for those who haven't seen them, it's basically almost no like impactful moves. It's just chain wrestling encounters and pin attempts and a bunch of comedy mixed in, but kind of, it's not a comedy match, but there is a lot of comedy, I think, weaved into it. And, um, I, I still really enjoy, I did feel like by, I didn't feel like it was long like you did, but I did, I will say in the final couple of minutes, I finally started to feel like, okay, they're starting to kind of, go to the well a little too often. Like it's starting to feel like they're repeating themselves a little bit. It, it only for me got that way in the last two or three minutes of this match, but it did at that point, but I still really had a, a very good time um, watching this. There was, I, I liked all sorts of neat little stuff like, you know, Colt condition continually like repo- repositioning Nigel's body when he's near the ropes for pins, but Nigel keeps putting a different limb on the ropes every time or Colt's, um, you know, rolling out of a move, so the next time Nigel just steps on both of Colt's legs so he can't roll away. But I guess the one fatal it's not a fatal flaw, but what the one big flaw in this match obviously is Matt, much like uh the show we just covered before this, Stalemate, where in the main event, Brian Danielson and uh Homicide, they have to repeat a spot that's obviously botched because it's a key spot in the story of the match. The end spot one well, of the basically the spot that leads to the directly to the ending of this match is um Nigel is supposed to do like a forward kind of roll trip or something, and he's supposed to quote unquote accidentally as he's doing the forward roll knee Colcaban in the nuts, and that allows him to get the roll up win. Except the first time he does the roll, he doesn't come close to hitting it. The camera tries to kind of hide that it's a botch, and to the point where at first I didn't realize it was a botch, but then you can clearly see the two of them talking to each other, and then they set up and do the exact spot a second time, which kind of hurts because the whole story of the spot is supposed to be, did Nigel mean to do this or not? But the fact that they had to redo the spot kind of stretches the believability on that story like the mystery of it when he's like doing the exact same weird convoluted spot again and this time oh he does hit him in the balls but still i I like the the idea of the spot and the story that that they're kind of do the is he a heel or was it a legit mistake at this point kind of turn but overall i like this match a fair bit matt what do you think where do you fall in kind of the spectrum on this match i think i'm I'm definitely closer to you trevor in that you know, I, I definitely see what Aaron's saying, um, but also they like the thing that, that that really makes me appreciate the match is that no one else on the roster is going to do a match like this at this time, and really you don't see too many people doing matches like this at any time on any show in America. Um, and you know, I really appreciated that aspect of it. Um, ROH always liked to try to build itself as like kind of it has all sorts of styles. It's not like WWE where everyone has to work the same style. Um, sometimes it doesn't always live up to that. You know, sometimes yeah. the matches are a bit samey, and no one else is doing this match. Um, you know, they, they they could they could do this match ten times and they'll still be the only match on the show doing it. Um, not th- not that they should do it ten times. Um, it obviously was a lot like the first match, but I think a little bit more comedy, like um, uh, leading, like leading through it. Um, you know, I think they they kind of um, advanced the concept a little bit more. Um, like the, you know, like you said, the different things where um, Nigel's trying to stop um, 
cult from escaping a move and they they do these like ex- escalating crawl outs like you know where like Nigel has has Colt in some sort of position and Cabana somehow finds a way to crawl out on his hands and knees in a you know kind of a funny way so Nigel stands on his legs like you said and then um you know Nigel does that art the artful dodger and feels like he's getting the best of Colt but Colt just crawls out again and then a um and then um you know, just like like Colt tries to crawl out uh, another time, but Nigel just kind of like stays on his back. So Colt is crawling with Nigel on top of him. So it's just like it's a unique but sort of fun psychology. Um, uh, you're right. The, uh, the the botch finish is was was so glaring that it's like I, I don't know if they could have edited it or done something. Um, but the other thing that was kind of silly was Gabe being Gabe in terms of like telegraphing the finish in terms of like. Um, oh yeah, you know, not, Nigel teases, teases kicking him low and Gabe's like, I would be shocked if Nigel went for the low blow there. Nigel <laughs> McGinnis is a sportsman. He's not going to use cheap tactics like that. You know, just kind of hammering over you, hammering you over the head with, uh, with the storyline. Um, but, but I, I definitely enjoyed it. I think they, they have good chemistry. Um, and, um. Yeah, I, I I also like the the slow burn heel turn that they're doing with Nigel. So yeah, a- after the match, uh, Nigel offers a handshake. Colt is really peeved about the nut shot, but they eventually shake, and Nigel even helps uh, Colt get out of the ring and walk to the back, even as they kind of bicker each- with each other over you know was that nut shot intentional or not. But again, continuing that little bit of a slow burn. One thing, um, I, one thing I noticed about the show: all of the undercard matches they cut away like immediately like at the end of that first match at the end of the next match but in but for this match they let they kind of give them a little bit more time to to show the walkout yeah i mean it's always interesting the editing choices because we've seen on these shows they have to do a pretty wide variance on like some shows if they have a lot of time you'll see like every second of the post-match and entrance even like which is guys kind of standing around and like high-fiving fans and then there'll be shows like this where it is more interesting like you said like what matches they actually give you a few extra seconds to sell things because, you know, this ma- this show seemed a bit more packed. So time, in fact, there, we'll get to later. There was a short match actually cut out of the show just to make everything fit. So um, next we go to Alex Shelley in some dark, dingy part of backstage. Uh, Shelley says, this is what it's come to. He's not even allowed in the Ring of Honor locker room anymore. Uh, Shelley says he helped build this company and he doesn't even get a spot in the locker room. Two years earlier, he made his debut in Ring of Honor in the Murphy Rec Center with a guy who's going to be on the ECW pay-per-view next month. He actually mentions that. And with the current Ring of Honor Tag Team Champions. Shelley says he didn't win. He didn't even make an impact. But he learned that Ring of Honor was a promotion he wanted to call home. He wanted to make Ring of Honor his home promotion. Uh, Shelley says for the next eight months, he tried to earn a spot in Ring of Honor, but he learned it was a foregone conclusion because in late January of 2004, he broke his collarbone and a shot at a spot flew out the window as he sat at home and healed for the next three months. He says, though, but during that time, I kept my eyes open. I kept watching things like the Super 8, and I found three guys with untapped potential, Roderick Strong, Jack Evans, and Austin Aries. He says, I told myself. I would save them from the mid-card purgatory I was in, and, he's, and one year ago, we formed Generation Next together with the goal of getting to the top as a unit. Shelley says the ambition they had blinded them and made them do things he's not proud of. 
And he even puts over Austin Aries at this point. He, you know, he puts him over for being Samoa Joe and defending the Ring of Honor world title all over the world. But then he reminds us that Aries booted him out of a group that he created. He says, tonight I'm going to show Aries that he was wrong. I thought this was a good promo. It, it, you know, again, the last few months of Shelley, like the time between final battle the, when he's kicked out of Generation Next and now feels like kind of a lost quarter of the year for Shelley. And this feels like almost kind of a combination recap of of the of why he's why this is a feud and why this is a major match and also almost like kind of almost an apology like it's a refocusing of alex shelley Uh, it it, basically this promo kind made me it made me wish that the feud for the last three months had been stronger because this should have been like the go-home promo of like three months of really good promos instead it's kind of like the one good promo i think we get out of this feud i think i sort of felt like a similar thing which is just like this promo is is too late like, yeah. like it just like this is not a promo that you cut like immediately before the match. You're you're using this to like from you know build up the match, but the match is already there. Like you know, it's it's yeah, like yeah, it almost feels like they're trying to make good for the weird booking of Shelley over the past few months. And um, yeah, I uh, I think if this was if this was Alex Shelley's promo out of the gate. Or even just a little bit after that, right after the breakup of Generation Next, I think, yeah, you would have gotten to a point where this match felt like a really, really big deal. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, the crowd was into that match, but I don't know if it really felt like the big deal, at least on on video, that it it should have felt like. Aaron, do you remember considering Shelley versus Aries like a huge deal, like 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 the like the title match of title matches when you went? I personally did. Because I loved all of this, um, I, I, I and I've been listening to you guys on the podcast and, and shaking my head in disagreement over the past. <laughs> all right, let's hear. Uh, it. Let's hear. It. This is what this yeah. is what we're here for. Um, I think that this promo is one of the most memorable um, promos in the history of the company up to this point. You know, I don't think it's as good as the Wrestle Rave promo, for instance. You know, Punk's promo, but I feel like it's like. Super memorable. I love the pathos of it. I love kind of like Shelly kind of like almost being proud of Austin Aries because it proves that like his project, his brainchild was successful. But the sort of the the bitterness of it being this other guy who swooped in and took it. Um, and and I and I like that story. I mean, I loved Alex Shelley. Like, I you know, I was just a big fan of him. I thought he was like the coolest guy. And I really, um, you don't see this in wrestling a lot. Um, the, like the idea, like there are not a lot of wrestling stories that explore the idea of forgiveness in the sense of like, you know, bad guys turn face, but then we just like forget about what happened. Right. Um, there, there's not often like a sort of like, uh, they're not like asked to be accountable for their actions. They're yeah. just good guys. Now. Yeah. The, the only one I could think of is when Sergeant Slaughter looked into the camera and very earnestly declared that he wanted his country back and Hacksaw Jim Duggan <laughs> forgave him. Right. Like, you know, so it's like, so I thought that it was interesting and I, and I believed Alex Shelley and I, and I forgave him and I wanted to see him make good. Um, but you're right that they didn't quite stick the landing with how they did it in terms of the sort of, I think the last episode, the sort of like the, um, the lack of continuity between CM Punk forgiving him, but then, then saying, you know, he's not allowed in the locker room. No one forgives him. They didn't quite pull it off. And then perhaps that's because it's, you know, pro wrestling is not a medium, uh, that has sort of a, 
a, uh, a, a restorative justice process. The, the justice process <laughs> is violence, right? That's how, that is how, that's, that's how justice is, is hand. That's the justice system in pro wrestling. Um, so it, I, I thought the story is like a valiant and interesting attempt to uh, introduce or sort of explore a, a concept that is sort of uh, difficult to work inside of, you know, pro wrestling, given that, you know, everything ends in a fight. Um, but, and I, I just love this promo and I loved Alex Shelley. And I thought, I thought that I went to that show, like thinking he could win, really wanting him to win. Um, and we'll talk more about the match later. I don't think the match quite delivers, but like when he hit the shell shock in the match, I was like, Oh my God, you know, like this is it. Um, yeah. so, so I, I bought into it. It does seem like the crowds, you know, all, all the way through the summer before he turns heel, wants to forgive Alex Shelley. Like, they want him to be a good guy, and ROH never quite gives it to them. Like, mm. you know, like, they, like they, 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 the crowd wanted to forgive him more than the booking did, which I think is, is interesting. Yeah. And I, I, I think, like, Aaron, I, I completely agree this is a really good promo, and I agree, like, I think the idea behind the Alex Shelley, like, post-getting kicked out of Generation Next. The idea, I agree, is a fantastic idea because, yeah, like going to what both of you guys said, like Matt with the Sergeant Slaughter thing, it's very rare in wrestling that a guy, you know, a heel guy turns face and like the faces just don't all immediately forgive him or the, at least everyone doesn't just act like, oh, he's great. We have no reason to doubt that he's, uh, you know, not being genuine. And I, I think the idea of a, of a heel, you know, getting kicked out, apologizing to everyone, actually saying, like, I realize now I fucked up, I, I did wrong things, I shouldn't have done some of the cheating and stuff, and then people not knowing for sure, you know, if, if, if he's genuine or not, that's really interesting. I think the problem is, you know, there's one of two ways you can do that angle, and they're both great. Like, you could have it so he really isn't genuine, and he fools everybody, or he really isn't genuine, and, um, you know, he eventually reveals himself, he stabs someone in the back again, right when they trust him. Or you could do it the other way, where he legit, like, is really repentant, and eventually he maybe over the course of months earns the babyface's trust and becomes a real babyface. And I feel like Ring of Honor, for the first, you know, the months we've been covering, me and Matt, like... I don't think it's clear if Ring of Honor even knew which direction they wanted to go in because sometimes the commentary is acting like, is he? A, maybe he is trying to be good. Again, we get like the CM Punk accepting his apology, but then other times they act like, oh, I don't think this is genuine. Like, I don't even get what Ring of Honor wanted me to believe at this point. And I, the, I mean, I have no idea what their intentions were, but the impression I get watching is they were just kind of making up as they went along because I, I don't know if the even rewatching this stuff, like, and knowing where it eventually ends up. I don't know in these months that we've been watching if the intent was always for Shelley to eventually just go heel again or for if there was originally supposed to be a time where maybe they were going to make him be like the redeemed baby face. And I, again, I think if you went all the way in either direction right from the start, it would have been like a great angle that is remembered more than it is right now. Yeah, and, oh, and I, by the way, I thought of one other uh, example of a of a babyface trying to uh, a, heel, a former heel trying to earn their babyface turn. When uh, Nikita Koloff was on Sting's team at the War Games in '92, and people were like, "Can you trust him?" And then he pushes Sting out of the way and takes the uh, the the Dangerous Alliance's like attack, and then and then he and Sting hug, and they're like, "Oh yeah, Nikita Koloff, he really is a good guy." 
So. Yeah, and Alex Shelley could have had that moment. You could have easily had a great moment where he like sacrifices himself and proves to everybody that like I'm the you know I am you know I'm I'm willing to do the right thing now. Like you can see it, but we never really get a moment like that, especially not up to this point. You know, where again this feud could have used I think up to this point something like that where it's like. Shelley gets complete redemption, and now he's going to kick Aries' ass and take the title. But either way, good promo. Um, third batch on the show, James Gibson defeated Black Tiger, a.k.a. Rocky Romero, via submission in 15 minutes, 57 seconds, when he made him tap to the guillotine choke. Um, I thought this match was good, like their previous match that they had when uh, Tiger was just wrestling as Rocky Romero. I felt like it had a bunch of time and didn't really tell much of a story. It was just good, solid, um, wrestling as always. I'm a broken record. Um, you know, James Gibson does so many of the little things, right? I think the little thing I noticed this time was he does a thing sometimes where like, he's really good. Like sometimes, sometimes wrestlers, you know, they'll throw a move with like an injured body part and then they'll sell after they hit the move. But sometimes Gibson will do that even with a body part that isn't injured. Like there's a point in this match where he throws a forearm to a, a black tiger and then he shakes out his own arm like, ow, I threw this forearm so hard. I hurt it. And the whole the story of the match isn't that his arm is hurt, but I like that he was even willing to do that just on a random move just to show like, yeah, my forearms effing hurt. Like I could even hurt my own arm like because I'm throwing my arm really hard in your skull. And just little detail work like that is what Gibson is so great at. Um, I thought this was a good match. I thought the, the, the main problem I didn't like was I felt like when, um, Black Tiger had a sustained run of offense in the middle of the match, it started to get a little bit dull. I, I feel like he wasn't quite making me in, into the little things as much as, uh, Gibson did. You could even hear the crowd quiet down a bit and then pick up when Gibson starts getting offense again. Although I did think Rocky Romero had some really good athletic moments in this match. Like he does a vertical leap from the ring to the top rope to do a Rana and just really impressive stuff like that. I feel like unlike the first, um, Gibson, uh, Romero match this year in ring of honor, you know, Romero didn't have any big botches. So in that sense, his performance was improved. Again, good match, not great match to me, but um, I also like the booking of it in a weird way just because it, this felt like Gabe trying to erase the uh, best of the American Super Junior as much as he could because obviously you couldn't and wouldn't want to have Kendo Kashin come back as Dragon Soldier B, but you could have Gibson beat the guy who went to the finals and kind of say, hey, you know. And, 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 you know, Gabe even sells this match on commentary as as Gibson trying to, like, make good on what he views as a disappointing Best of American Super Junior Tournament performance. So, um, overall, uh, I, I, I like the match, but it's not it's not in my top two or three matches from the show. Um, Matt, what did you think? Um, yeah, I thought it was better than the Back to Basics match, for sure. Um, part of it was what you said, but, um, you know, part of it was also, I thought that the finishing sequence was, uh, was more exciting. I, um, you know, there wasn't a ton of, like you said, psychology and stuff until the last few minutes with all the ankle lock stuff and, and Gibson selling the ankle. Um, I think, you know, the match was carried on the strength of the execution, you know, which I thought was just really, really good from Gibson, but also from from black tiger i thought that you know they just like everything that they did was was really good and the crowd is so into james gibson um you know this crowd was into you know almost everything but they you know they just consistently these crowds love james gibson and and a crowd that's really into a match you know if you've listened to the show you could tell like that that has definitely has an influence on how i perceive the match for sure it can't you know it can't take a terrible match into like good territory but 
if a match is good, you know, it could make it seem better. And and I thought this was a pretty good match that was made to seem better by the fact that the crowd got really into it at the end and just really was willing Gibson on. Um, by the way, he did not have, for the first time in ROH, he did not have Confederate flags on his trunks tonight. He debuted those green jo- John Deere trunks, um, <laughs> which is definitely an improvement. Um, but, um, yeah, it was just like a, a really good, like... Well, not it was it was a good. No, I wouldn't say really good, but a good traditional competitive yeah. athletic wrestling match, and um, you know that's fine. I I, uh, I I did notice one thing though. This was another in a series of matches on this show, and there are a few matches like this on the show where the finish feels kind of abrupt to me. Like that first match where they had the move out of nowhere, the you know that 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 Rana pile driver thing, the McGinnis match where like he got a quick roll up after a low blow, then a couple other matches later, but then this one, you know, t- you know, Black Tiger hit the Northern Light suplex and Gibson kicked out and just immediately turned it into the front choke and the tap out like immediately and it was just like oh it's over okay, like I don't know it it feels like almost like a stylistic thing that a lot of people in ROH are doing at this point. Um, you know, I don't know if this was like an edict that came from from Gabe or something, or if it's just a coincidence. But it feels like there's a lot of matches that end in a way that feels kind of sudden. Uh, Aaron, you got to see uh, Black Tiger and Rocky Romero on the same show. I mean, how yeah. incredible is that? Uh, yeah. What would yeah. you think about this? I I, my, I also noticed the abrupt finish, but my my what I wrote in my notes was kind of an abrupt finish, but really dang good. And I just, I just thought that this was just like a good, solid pro wrestling match. And I think that definitely what Matt said about the execution rings true for me. Just watching these guys, you're like, these guys are just fucking great. Like these guys are just really good, smooth, intense um, pro wrestlers who know what they're. You're like, you're watching like two real elite professionals. I think just have a good mid card match. And I thought that. Gibson has really stood out to me on the rewatch and I, I never really connected with him as a kid. And I think because it's like, you know, like I was like a Jewish guy from Long Island and he was like, <laughs> you know, just sort of this very exaggerated country boy gimmick that really didn't resonate with me in a way where, you know, I wanted to be cool like Alex Shelley, but not like James Gibson. Um, but I thought that just like his facial expressions and the way that he just sort of was like desperate to avoid the tiger suplex or desperate uh, to, to sort of get to the ropes when he was in the ankle lock. I thought his facial expressions were great and sort of the sense of urgency he had was great. And uh, I, I really I really enjoyed this. Um, so I would say really good, but not not great. But, but both guys, you watch it and you're like, these guys are just two excellent pro wrestlers. And I agree with both you guys that the finish was abrupt. I've been noticing that with a few of the Gibson matches that there's been one flaw with Gibson's Ring of Honor run so far is it seems like he's had a few matches where he kind of just gets the choke out of nowhere and wins. And maybe that's the idea. He wants to sell that you can go and get it from out of nowhere and just be a sudden end. But yeah, there has been a few Gibson matches, I think, where we've said, Matt, that like, oh, that was kind of a, a quick, abrupt end all of a sudden where he just grabs the choke and it's over. But um, that yeah. brings us to it. Well, I was going oh, go to say, say like, cause, uh, unlike Aaron, I, um, I was a self-loathing wrestling fan, so I didn't want to be like any of the wrestlers back then, <laughs> but, but now I do, but, but only Outback Jack. It's, it's still my, <laughs> it's still my life goal to just be like an exaggerated, uh, crocodile Dundee-esque Australian stereotype. That's my, that's my life goal. I just want the clothing style of Gary Michael Capetta. I want some of those sweaters. I want to age gracefully into that. That that that's my wrestling uh, um, future goal. But I, I believe hashtag it. wrestling goals. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hashtag I mean, me too. I mean, uh, crikey. No, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, yeah, what, did, Outback, we- did Outback Jack have a, have a catchphrase? <laughs> Matt, I'm the wrong person to ask. If only Justin Shapiro was on the show, he would definitely know if Outback Jack had a catchphrase. Or would he? Huh. Anyway, Joe, Joe, um, Joe Gagne would definitely know. Yes, Joe Gagne. The, oh God, you made me think of him, but yes. Um, moving on to something more pleasant to think about. A Ring of Honor tag team title match. BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs successfully defended their titles when they defeated Jack Evans and Roderick Strong in 1445 after Whitmer pinned Evans after he and Jacobs hit the Doomsday Contra Code. So Jacobs doing the Contra Code off of uh, BJ's shoulders. Uh, Matt, this was a... Uh, a match with two teams that in some ways are kind of similar. You got the, the dynamic. Both teams have the little guy that takes a good beating and the big guy that chucks people around and do the combination offense where the big guy tosses the little guy onto people. So kind of a little bit of a mirror match. And uh, another big title sh- tag title shot for Strong and Evans. What would you think? I, I've always loved this match. Like it's just always been one of my, my favorite ROH tag team matches. I would say watching it back now, it it doesn't quite reached the levels of my memory in that it's like there's sloppiness to it that maybe I didn't totally remember, but it's so much fun. You know, the, the crowd is like, and again, just, and that this is a consistent for the whole show, just electric for it. Like the, it's just, it just feels like such a fun, exciting experience. Um, I, you know, I would have loved to have actually been live for this. Uh, you know, I could even see, I mean, I'd have to ask Aaron, but live is, it almost feels like this might've been the best match, uh, just in terms of like, as a spectacle, um, but, um, but yeah, it immediately made it seem like Whitmer and Jacobs were a better tag team than Whitmer and Moff. Uh, I mean, the, this was only their first tag title defense and they didn't have a lot, you know, period ever, but, and they were up against probably the most exciting tag team on the Indies in 2005 with uh, Evans and Strong. So I think that probably made a big, a big difference in how it came off, but but man, it was just like so many fun moves and stuff. And, you know, they, they did character work at the beginning with Evans breakdancing and then Whitmer pretending like he was going to dance. But instead, he just like snaps a few times and slaps Evans really hard across the face, um, which the crowd loved. And, you know, I definitely think Whitmer and Strong were on point in terms of like the sound of their strikes you know that that slap was really loud. Strong's chops were really loud. You know they were um, they were able to get that going well. And you know Whitmer and Jacobs they were pretty well well oiled in terms of doing double team moves. Um, you know a lot of like you said like kind of a mirror match. You know Whitmer was was power bombing Jacobs onto Evans and uh, and you know uh, lifting him up and dropping him onto Strong. You know, for a first, for a second match together, it's you know they they, they definitely had some of their spots down, um, and of course, you know Strong and Evans also had a lot of those. Like for instance, um, there was a spot where Jacobs was draped across the middle rope with like like stomach down, and he put Evans on his shoulders and kind of backflipped him off into a double stomp onto Jacobs' back, and. I I mean, one of the biggest pops of the whole night for that move. And Gabe doesn't even call the move. He just yells dangerous. Like, that's the entire (laughs) call for that move. I guess, what can you call it? I guess, like, assisted backflip double stomp that will break someone's back. That's kind of what it it is. Um, 
I, for for a lot of the match, Evans is wearing what might actually be his least like professional looking ring gear ever because he's just wearing this giant red t shirt and and white pants and white <laughs> bandana. He he. But right as I was typing that note, he took off his shirt and it was wearing a sleeveless undershirt, which is you know still not wrestling gear, but at least more of a typical thing that you might expect Jack Evans to wear. But he just looks so funny doing all these moves in just this like giant red t-shirt like it was just it was like um it was a t-shirt that you would expect a much bigger wrestler to wear i guess is is what i would say um but um but generation after they, they get enough two counts that um every time jacobs kicks out they they emphasize his toughness and he and he husses up on strong but then Strong hits the sick kick, so that comeback doesn't go anywhere. But the kick does get a holy shit chant, and pretty much all the moves get some sort of insane reaction because the crowd is just eating it up. There's a little bit of awkwardness uh, as Strong tries to take Jacobs off his feet, but uh, but Strong puts him on his shoulders, and Evans comes off the top with the with a doomsday like crossbody. Um, um, but Jacobs hits a reverse Rana on Strong, so Evans misses the crossbody. Uh, then he hot tags Whitmer, goes goes crazy, rolls through an Evans crossbody, hits a brain buster, um, goes for a kick on Strong. Strong catches it and hits a backbreaker. Then uh, he uh, puts Whitmer across his knee, and Evans comes off the top with a moonsault, but he mostly lands with his foot on Whitmer. But I actually think that made the move look cooler, like just like a backflip like kick. To Whitmer, yeah. who was on Strong's knee, I I don't think that was what was intended, but I guess you know who knows maybe. Um, the the Whitmer and Jacobs do the Doomsday Rana, but Jack kicks out, and you know I still feel like that doesn't seem like a move people should be kicking out of. Um, but I have to say that the move that they win with is just as cool. So you know what maybe maybe it's fine. Um, but you know they do they do a few more big spots. Ode to the Bulldog with a Phoenix Splash, crowd goes nuts for that. Um, the Whitmer kicks out after a delayed cover. Um, I, I, I don't think they've actually ever pinned anyone at this point with the Ode to the Bulldogs, which is kind of funny because that's still their signature move. Um, <laughs> um, Evans goes for a top rope Rana, and like this is it's kind of botchy. Like it's like both men are standing on the top rope, and Evans jumps up, and he has a long way to jump to hook Whitmer's head. And he like he kind of glancingly gets his legs across the head, falls off, and Whitmer kind of takes the bump after. It was it was okay. It wasn't like a glaring bad spot, but definitely not what they were hoping for. Um, but they uh, Whit- uh, Strong hits the double knees to Whitmer, but Whitmer hits a big clothesline right after Strong goes to the floor, and then they do a like it's like almost like a power bomb into a contra code. Um, um, off the top rope on Evans, and uh, and that's the the finishing move. So you know that's 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 a good one. So I, I guess it's okay if they didn't win off the Doomsday Rana. I still think the Doomsday Rana is probably a slightly better, like more impressive looking move. But that is Jacob's finisher, so I can't complain. But but yeah, no, this was just just the double team moves were insane. The crowd was going nuts. Um, it was a really cool coming out party for Jacobs and Whitmer. Um, it makes it made it seem like they would be really great tag team champions. I feel like if you were going in, like excited for this match in particular, you got your money's worth. Uh, 
Aaron, like Matt said, this seems like a match that would have been just a blast to watch live in the building. Um, I mean, what was this like in the building? Dude, this match slaps so fucking hard. I, I, uh, this isn't one of the best matches, pro wrestling matches of all time, but it's one of my favorites. I think about it a lot. It's the match that stands out the most in my mind from being there. Um, it's just, even now, it holds up. It's just fucking bonkers. All the combinations of guys are, are good together. And, you know, you don't really see a lot of Evans in the ring with Jacobs, but every other combination is just great. Like, I think that, um, you know, BJ Whitmer is one of the most underrated guys from this era, and I think that if he were around 10 years later, he would have, he just, like, it was just like, you know, what's the difference between B.J. Whitmer and, you know, Biff Busick other than, you know, B.J. Whitmer was on a roster with Samoa Joe and Loki and CM Punk and all these guys. Like, I, I thought that, that they're both Whitmer and Strong are so explosive and powerful in this match. The double teams are just right, like just totally insane. And being there live was just nuts. I was so mad when when uh, they kicked out of the Ode to the Bulldog. I wanted I wanted uh, Strong and Evans to win this match and win the titles really badly. Um, but just, yeah, an absolute thrill ride in person. It holds up. It doesn't totally hold up in the sense that, like, you know, what Matt says is right. Like, I think in the 15 years since, we've seen guys like Ricochet and Will Ospreay who can, like, do as many flips as Jack Evans, but do them with a sort of grace and body control that he was not able to do, or at least at this point in his career. Uh, but just like an absolute barn burner of the match. Insanely hot crowd. Um, never a dull moment. Um, just like, yeah, this is, I don't know. Yeah. Just a formative moment. I feel like in terms of like, Oh yeah, like this is fucking sick. I want to feel this as many times as I can. Like I, I, you know, this is, I don't know. It's like such a, like, yeah. Like thinking about that moment and being in the New Yorker hotel and just like this, just insane match with a hot, like this, this is what it is to go to pro wrestling. Right. This yeah. is why we do this shit. This, I, I, this was my uh, favorite match of the, of the show up to this point at, at the very least, this was very good. Um, I agree with both, both of what you guys said. Um, I agree that like there are some sloppiness parts and I, I think we've talked about before the thing that ages the worst in wrestling and, and it kind of ages the quickest is any kind of big spot based match because it just feels like wrestlers are always getting faster and more mechanically polished. So it, that like Matt, you point did a great job pointing out like some of the things that didn't look quite clean and that does take down the match a tiny bit, but I think it's also a testament to how good this match is that like, it being a match that's just a complete crazy spot match in some ways, it like still is as good as it is, even though that's the kind of match that I feel like has advanced the most. It still holds up pretty darn well, considering all of that. And um, yeah, it's just like I said at the start, um, it's really fun just because these two teams are kind of like in some ways, they're not completely similar, but they are kind of similar composition teams. And like you were saying, Aaron, um, basically every combination is fun in this match because it's fun to see strong beat up Jacobs. It's fun to see BJ beat up, uh, Jack and it's fun when the two ass kickers meet and it's fun even when you get to see the two smaller guys come in. Um, but my, my, my complaint, Matt would be like you, which is the old to the bulldogs 
you know, you know, um, Generation Next has had strong and Evans have had problems with like that's like clearly the coolest move they have, and it's never like hardly ever the finish for them. And I feel like already um, BJ and Jacobs have the same problem because the Doomsday Rana is such a cool spot. They've done it in their first two matches, two of their tag matches now at least, and both times like in this match, Jack Evans kicks out of it, and it's not even like. It's not even Roderick Strong breaks up the pin. Like, Jack just completely kicks out of it clean. And, you know, I'm not one of these real sticklers. I'm not, like, the most old-school guy in terms of protecting things. But I do feel like a spot that cool, you know, they've already had guys kick out of it, like, two times, and they're, like, two or three matches into their Ring of Honor tag career. And I do feel like that, even though, yes, the uh, the finish they did do, the, the powerbomb contra code, is almost as cool I really feel like just like the O to the Bulldogs, they already have a move that is so cool. It just begs to be their finisher. And um, they're just kind of using it in the middle of matches as like a, as a, just a random near fall, but still really exciting. Just match with lots of big spots. And I, uh, um, I always thought that, that Evans and strong should have been the perennial tag champs instead of Aries and strong. Um, but they weren't. And so, to me, this match is their peak. Is their peak as a yeah. tag team? Yeah. And um, and I there I like so like I said, this is still you know despite the flaws, still one of my all time favorite tag team matches. And I um, you know I, I I do wonder what could have been if they had just were given like a solid run where they had just tons and tons of matches together, like how you know even just a rematch of this one could have been amazing. And yeah. it's oh, sorry, go it's. Ahead. So I was just going to say it's sad because, you know, 2005 is kind of an, uh, uh, not, I don't know, lost year sounds a little too harsh. But, you know, it's a year where the Ring of Honor tag titles, they're kind of just stuck in the undercard and they kind of, you know, don't really seem to know what they do with them. And they don't really get a real kind of renewed push and stability until Aries and Strong win it. And I do feel always wonder, like watching this match, I was just thinking kind of like you were thinking about, like, what would have happened if for like six months out of this year, they had just given Strong and Evans the titles because I think clearly like they were super over. I mean, this is probably I'm, I would be shocked if this doesn't end up being the best tag match um, BJ and Jacobs have together. And the last tag champs, uh, the Havana Pitbulls, the best tag match they had in their Ring of Honor run was shockingly against Strong and Evans. So it's like it would have been great. Like w- what would have happened if you would put them as the focal point if they had the titles and like, yeah, it's just one of those things we'll never know, I guess. Yeah, I was watching. Um, they did that like DVD. They did this series for a while, like in Evolve, where Gabe would do like a shoot interview with um, like the Evolve wrestlers, like right before they went to NXT. And he they yeah. did one with Roderick Strong, and there was like a moment in that interview where Roderick Strong was like, "Yeah, you know, I still wish we would have gotten, you know, we could have been champions." Um, you know, him and Evan. So I think it's, it's, it's funny that like, it's, you know, he too appears to be, uh, you know, wistful uh, for, and, yeah. and, you know, wishing that this team got that, that title run. 
and uh, a couple other quick points. We, uh, I also believe this show was the debut of the shiny new Ring of Honor tag belts, as we talked about recently when Dan Moff got, quote, injured in a car accident. He, uh, I don't know if he ever returned the title, his tag belt, or if it was just late. I believe the other tag belt was kind of beat up. So here the announcing makes a, a point to tell us, look at those. You know, they got brand new, shiny Ring of Honor new tag team title belts. And also, I guess we should just mention the finish of that match, the uh, the um, the 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 big uh, contra code, assisted contra code. Jack Evans takes a really nasty bump on that on his head and neck that maybe maybe wasn't supposed to take it that way. And we'll get to a review at the end of the show of this match where people are acting like that's almost like he meant to do that. I really doubt that Jack Evans meant to land on his head and neck that way he did. But it is if you watch if you go back and watch this now, take note like it's a really brutal bump he takes and it's one of the many bumps that jack evans took in his career that people said oh he won't even make it until he's 30 and yet he's still wrestling today incredible that he's still still wrestling still seems like healthy and can do flips and stuff like it's it's a it's remarkable actually yeah i mean he is one of the like definitely there are times where people say oh this wrestler will never make it if they don't change their style and they're absolutely right but he's like one of those weird exceptions that proves the rule where like he's probably outlasted a lot of wrestlers that people would say had wrestled way safer and more old school than him. And yeah, he's still going. And some of the, many of them probably are more beat up, at least on the surface on appearances than he is. So yeah, uh, that brings us to the ring of honor pure title match. Samoa Joe defeats Jay Lethal via pinfall in 16 minutes, 33 seconds after he hits the Chimera combo, which is a German suplex, a dragon suplex, and then an arms capture kind of straight jacket German suplex. Samoa Joe becomes the new pure wrestling champion. Um, Aaron, one of my favorite points on this show is, uh, it's just how the crowd reacts to Joe, both his entrance and then right when he wins the t- after he wins the title for the first time in months they're able to play instead of you know his his mama says knock you out theme they uh they play again the champ is here and the crowd chanting along like joe this is one of those nights where joe really does feel even in a in a quote unquote indie promotion with not the highest production values he really does feel like one of the biggest stars in the world just an absolute super duper star yeah uh yeah, I mean, watching it back, you're like, wow. He's just so fucking good. Everything he does is, like, crisp and exciting and explosive and serious. And, yeah, this was um, this was really great. This was a great match. And Joe, you know, and I think it's, like, the booking, I feel like, just it's sort of, like, kind of a bummer for Jay Lethal in the sense of, like, it felt like it took forever for him to win the pure title where he had that feud where it was, like, He's feuding with Jimmy Rave, but the belt is on Walters and he has to beat Walters eventually. And it's just like, um, you know, it felt like it took forever. And then he finally got it. And then like losing it to his mentor just kind of made him look like a nerd and a dork. And it never really sort of I don't think that he never really gets to that level again in this in sort of at least in, in like in this incarnation, like this Ring of Honor run. Um, but um, but yeah, this was this was really really strong, very just intense from the very beginning, um, and uh, you know just um, yeah, and yes, the reaction to Joe, he's just, I mean he, it's like how many years and and I, I haven't watched enough pro wrestling to say, but like how many years in pro wrestling are better than Samoa Joe's two thousand five, right? Just yeah, just like 
an all-time great at the peak of his powers. It's fun to watch. Yeah, I thought this was a very good match. I thought this was, you know, right up there so far with the the, the previous match. Maybe not, maybe a little, a little bit lesser, but like really good match. Um, a completely different kind of match, obviously. At the same time, this is one of those matches that kind of was a tease to me because I felt like this is one of those matches where they show you a couple ways directions they could have made the match go in, and then they just kind of go, well, we're not going down that road. And both of them looked really interesting. Like the first road I think they could have gone down on is very early on the opening of the match. Joe just comes at lethal full bore for forces him back into the corner. He's peppering with strikes and then lethal just fires back, slaps him right in the face and knocks Joe off his feet. You know, Joe rarely does that big of a cell where he's acting like woozy and falls to the mat and lethal just gets mad and screams like, you know, the real champ is here. And it's a really it's it's kind of like the promo that we talked about at the start of the show from him where it's a really cool role reversal and it's it's a really interesting idea. I don't think like I I don't buy that lethal is his slap is enough to knock Joe off his feet like that like again I don't think he at this point had the authority to really sell it, but I think the idea of the match being that like lethal's really pissed off and kind of taking it to his mentor who's also kind of bullied him for all these months. I think that would have been a really cool vibe. And the rest of the match is kind of doesn't go like that's, that's the most emotion you see. It's right at the start. And then likewise, I think this match does a really interesting idea with like the, uh, the rope breaks where Joe in probably pretty early in the match, like probably by the time the match is halfway over, Joe has just used up all of his rope breaks. Like, um, he has no hesitance on like some wrestlers in these matches about grabbing the ropes. He uses close fists twice and that costs him his third rope break. Cause you're not allowed to do that. You get a warning after the first one and commentary does a really good job. Gabe, I think where he points out that you, that Joe is not the veteran when it comes to the pure rules. While he's the veteran, you know, he's the far more accomplished wrestler. Lethals has way more experience with the pure rules than Joe. And then once Joe uses the three rope breaks, it hardly comes into play in the rest of the match. There, there's one big spot where Lethal gets Joe in a choke on the apron, and Joe just dives off the apron through the announcing table to break it. But for the most part, like once Lethal, like once Joe uses up all the rope breaks, this match is kind of like, well, we're not really going to think about submissions that much, and it's just more of a standard, you know, indie work rate match. A good version of it, but and again, the match itself, the match they gave me, really good. But it, I just felt like both of those things could have made, been even cooler ideas. And they kind of tease you like, oh, we could do this. And then it's like, well, we're just doing that for a spot. And then we're, we're going away. But overall, I um, really enjoyed this match quite a bit. And my favorite part, Matt, before I throw it into you, for any – I don't know if you guys noticed this. But for anyone that's watching this, if you already watched it, go back and watch this. In the moment after Joe wins the match – there are the camera angle. You can see him, you know, lying on the mat after right. And right after there are two girls in the front row, which is already rare for a ring of honor show at this point. And when Joe wins, they freak out so much. They jump up and down. They flail their hands around. They high five. You have never seen two people, let alone, you know, the rarity of two women this happy that anyone has won anything in a wrestling match in a long time. It was just so heartwarming and cool. They are just so pumped that Joe has won the fear title. 
Um, it, worth going back if you people if, for people who haven't seen. I, I might have to clip that maybe for Twitter after this. But uh, Matt, what did you think of uh, this match? Um, so you know, we, we mentioned like Joe's two thousand and five and how great it was. Um, I feel like this match is kind of Joe getting his mojo back in a way. You know, he does have an amazing 2005. Um, but he didn't really have one so far in ROH. You know, not that anything was bad or anything like that, but it's not like you can point to a ton of memorable Samoa Joe matches from the first, you know, three months, four months of the year. Um, this is really the first one that, like, I think back to, like, oh, yeah, Samoa Joe 2005. Like, this is like this is the earliest match in the year that I have like specifically fond memories of, and um, you know I think after after this match it's kind of you know all uphill for him, um, you know which makes sense because we had read that he was pretty depressed right um, yeah. with wrestling and you know I think he's probably kind of snapping I'm just you know assuming kind of snapping out of it at this point, um, and uh, you know he's, he's he's really good here like you said a huge superstar. You know, like the, the Hulk Hogan of, of ROH, or maybe even more like, you know, like the Stone Cold or the Rock of ROH. And, um, you know, they have, they have a really a damn good match. I, it's funny because I read um, Meltzer's review of this, this show, and he mentions, like, their match was good, but Lethal needs to work on his strikes. And then I was watching, and, like, Lethal hit, had these, like, really hard chops that are, like, super loud. And I'm like, eh, I don't think Lethal strikes are so bad. Like, did, did you notice specifically that Jay Lethal had bad strikes? I mean, no. Uh, again, the only spot that looked a little bit weird was uh, that spot I said at the start where you, Jay fires up and he slaps Joe in the face and Joe does a big wobble like you knock me out. So, but it's not even like the slap was bad. It was just like Joe sold really big for a slap to the face. Like that was like almost a knockout punch. But like, yeah, other than that, I would have never guessed that like – I wouldn't go, oh, Jay Lethal has really weak strikes. I thought they were fine. Yeah, I, I think in sometimes sometimes they're even really good, especially his ch- his chops are much louder than I would expect, you know, from a guy his size. Like, uh, he definitely, like, is, like, a, a heavy hands type of guy. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I also didn't, you know, didn't even mind that they just kind of went for, like, an action-style indie match. I actually think that was a successful choice because most of the pure title matches, you know, they try to, you know, get kind of cute with the the pure title rules and this one they're just like whatever we're gonna have a we're gonna have a match and it's gonna be for the pure title but we're gonna kick each other's ass and and i think that i think that worked i think the crowd was like super up for it i think it was it was really exciting um i really liked the way they did the table spot you know where it was like a, a desperation move by joe where he just kind of like you know it's like a suicide dive through the table that sent both of them through it i i, I thought that was really cool i always love table spots that don't seem set up at all you know, because so many of them do seem set up. Whenever you can get a table break without it, you know, telegraphing it, I think that that is that's pretty cool. Um, this was another match, though, where the finish did feel kind of sudden to me. Like not not like it's like just super like boom, it's done, but just like you know, like lethal hit the dragon suplex. Um, but then Joe just ducked a clothesline, and he hit the the Chimera the Chimera combo, which he really doesn't win matches with that often. So like that's I think why it felt abrupt to me. Like I just like you know he he had he had won matches with that before. Like but it probably not since what two thousand and three, um, and that's fine. But just like it, I'm not saying it really made the match worse, but it did it did stand out to me, especially considering I noticed some other abrupt finishes. Um, 
but no, I really, really like this match. I think it was a, uh, it was just, it was a, a damn good match. A uh, couple other little notes from my uh, note. I mean, a couple other notes from my notes. Uh, Gabe, Gabe at one point says, one time, day 20 to 30 years from now when there's a Ring of Honor Hall of Fame. And it was funny because I, I thought, like, oh, you're getting a little heavy yourself, Gabe. But ironically, like, we're not that far from 20 years from that match now. No, we're, and- we're, we're 16, years, 16 years on, and it's been now um, – 19 years since the start of ROH. I think we're, I think they could definitely start talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I'm sure there was a lot of people watching that show at the time thinking, Oh yeah, right. Gabe. Yeah. It's going to be around 20 years. And uh, you know, to, you know, it's taken a lot of weird turns to get there, but they probably will be around 20 years. Maybe and who knows how much longer, but yeah. an honorable mention does, does do a hall of fame. Yes, they do. Yeah. We, we voted in the most recent one. In fact, that's right. I will never tell who I voted for. Never. <laughs> But um, you don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I don't remember much, man. Um, uh, other moments I liked. Um, I really loved. There's a moment where Bobby Cruz is is making an announcement that like Jay Lethal has a has a warning because he used a closed fist, and uh, Joe hits the elbow suicida like mid Bobby Cruz announcement. So Bobby Cruz is like he's like doing the announcement. He's like Jay Lethal has, and it's just a pause elbow suicida and then he continues his announcement it was such a weird neat little thing and then also i just love the way joe takes suplexes like he takes uh lethal's dragon suplex most people when they take lethal's dragon suplex they do like a full flip and land on their stomach which is probably the safest way to take it which is smart joe like a lot of times when he does take a big suplex he'll go up almost like it looks like he's almost going up heavy and he'll land like right on his neck and shoulders and it it makes it look like the most scary thing in the world. It's probably not, again, the healthiest way to take a suplex, especially if you're a big guy, but it always looked great. We took suplexes like that. But um, after the match, for the first time in months, the champ is here plays. The crowd chants around along loudly with it. And Joe, Joe's just one of those guys where he just feels like a 10 times bigger star when he's a champ than when he's not. Even as the pure champ, just him holding that belt, he just looks, he's made for holding a title belt. Um, Joe and Jay at this point shake hands and hug. And I do love that they never did a heel turn here. Like, it would have been such an easy pro wrestling thing to have, like, Jay turn on Joe or Joe cheat as a swerve to win the belt. I love that, you it know. Literally, it literally happens a few months later. Yeah. <laughs> That's what bugs me. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I love at this point that they did it like this. I, it, was better, I, it, was I, better, it was better like this, I will say that. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I like going to what Aaron said before, you know, like, I get what I Garen, I get what you're saying about how like it's it's kind of bad that you know Jay Lethal was just getting his push and you know I mean he will still be pushed but you know he loses his kind of his first title quickly but that also it is kind of like what these big ROH title reigns why they were important is sometimes like a guy like Joe would just squash people's dreams like you know there there were matches during Joe's world title reign like against Christopher Daniels and Homicide where you could tell like oh, the crowd's ready. If there's a title change tonight, the crowd will go ape shit and just love it. And they would just have Joe squash their dreams. And just the same here, we're like, yeah, the story, sh- in a way, the, the heartwarming story is the rookie finally gets out, out, out from under the shadow of the mentor. But it's like, no, Joe, just he's still better. And he just fucking beats him clean. And, and you know, it, 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 these little bummers out to kind of a cool 
I think kind of add up to some of the coolness of Joe. Yeah, but some, sometimes you can go too far, like with uh, Rob Van Dam and Jerry Lynn, you know, things like that, where it's just like you know, where a guy just like never gets over the hump, you know, like but yeah, but that but that is a Paul limit. Heyman thing, like you know, where it's just like you know, this one guy is just better; they're just better. <laughs> And we will see in Ring of Honor, there are definitely times where, yeah, they do wait too long to pull the trigger on certain things. But I did like this moment. But then just this Jay and Joe hug, the lights dim, we hear dogs bark, and then Loki's theme hits. He has returned to Ring of Honor. Julius smokes Rocky Romero and Homicide by his side. And, uh, and the unnamed... I was about to say... Yes, well, go ahead, fine. Uh, I, no, I was just about to say, if you're talking about key jaws at Joe from ringside, which allows Monster Mac to get in the ring and but, attack Joe from but, but I need to rant about this. I'm sorry. Okay. Because no, go ahead. This is what I, I mentioned this um, back when the Hit Squad broke up, which is Monster Mac comes back to ROH a few times as part of the Rottweilers, and they never say who he is. They call him one of Homicide's like goons or whatever they call him, and it makes me so mad. I don't know why they do that. It feels so disrespectful. This was a guy who was like one of the major in one of the major tag teams of the company, you know, and he's you know still was wrestling in other places. Why can they not acknowledge who he is? It it drives me insane. Like I still am driven insane by this fact, and I need to know why. Yeah, I, I don't get it because like we've seen sometimes like with just the last show, they have guys that Ring of Honor isn't going to use where I think was it EC Negro, he interfered in the main event of the last show and they just oh it's one of the Rottweilers goon like you were saying goons. But yeah, Monster Mac, anyone that's a longtime Ring of Honor fan will recognize him. Like even I, I get sometimes maybe I was trying to think why they wouldn't mention him. I could think, well, if Gabe knows he's not planning on booking him, he doesn't want to make you think maybe that he's going to book him by acknowledging him. But look, because everyone knows who he is and he was, a, you know, a fairly significant person in Ring of Honor in the first year, you know, the hit squad was a big tag team. Like it's crazy to not acknowledge who he is and to you're acknowledging that he's there because you're saying, oh, he just attacked somebody, but you're not saying his name. Like, it, yeah, like you said, it's really a weird middle ground. It just, it, just, it just feels very disrespectful to me. And obviously, you know, maybe maybe he did. I mean, maybe he did mind. I don't know. But it, it doesn't seem like he minded. And maybe they had they discussed it and like that he understood why. I don't know. But it feels disrespectful to me. Like, again, if they like didn't like him that much to begin with, I don't think he would have been having like run in spots on a major show. You know, like clearly someone didn't mind enough to be like, OK, Monster Mac can, can run in and attack you know, Joe, but yet, yet they wouldn't say his name. It is, yeah, it is bizarre. But anyway, at this point, after Monster Mac attacks, the crowd chants NYC as uh, Smokes nut shots Lethal and Joe with his baseball bat. Uh, Key gets on the mic as a beaten Joe and Lethal are held down. Key says the last time he saw Lethal was when he put his size 11 Timbaland all up in his grill. Key, in fact, reveals that he was the mystery man that attacked Jay Lethal backstage a few shows ago. Key says New York is Rottweiler territory. He says where he comes from, it's all about respect, and respect is either earned or beaten into you. He slaps Lethal, lays into him as Smokes does the same to Samoa Joe. Key then says anyone who disrespects disrespects the Rottweilers will go down like a punk. So this was another one of those moments, uh, Aaron, you know, where Loki, you know, another one of his returns where it feels really cool and really major. And, of course, you had this really cool vibe where even though the Rottweilers are supposed to be heel, obviously it, it – they were faces basically for the new hometown crowd. It, you know, it did feel like sort of like, you know, 
the Ring of Honor was tras- trespassing on the Rottweiler's territory, and it gives th- this whole night kind of a cool vibe, even though, again, it does kind of go against the storyline where these guys are supposed to be villainous assholes, and the entire crowd just fucking loves the Rottweilers tonight. But, yeah. I mean, what did you think about this whole just thing? Just a sick, sick angle, sick vibe. Um, the music cue is like the with the with the dogs barking and the DMX being like you know this is not a fucking game. Yeah, I mean you gotta love it. Um, place went crazy. Um, I was like I was sort of like I remember being a kid being like, well, just because they're in New York City doesn't mean we should like you know cheer these. They're still like you know they're still the Rottweilers. They're still uh oh you were a good year old fan. Not, like, not that I wasn't guys. like not that I wasn't like a smart or whatever, but I just didn't have like New York City pride. Like I was I don't know <laughs> you know. And so I was like, wow, I guess we're all just like I guess that's what we're doing. We're cheering the Rottweilers tonight. Yeah, you're like they're, um, you're like they're from they're not from Long Island, so we can't. Yeah, they're not, from, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're not from Suffolk County, New York. Get the fuck out of here, right? Look, um, I take hometown very literally. Yeah, we only stand, uh, you know, Trent Beretta, right? <laughs> you know, Long Island wrestling, and but yeah, Zach Ryder. I, yeah, Zach Ryder as well. I don't know where on Long Island he's from, um, but I think Trent is from like. Like Mount Sinai or something like that. I, I mean, I mean, I mean. There's there is one extremely famous Suffolk County wrestler. Sure, oh yeah, Mick Foley, yeah, the god, yeah. the god, yeah, Ring of Honor legend as well. That's right. Um, and speaking of Mick Foley, this is sort of another thing where it's like another sort of like you know this this show is like fan service and it's a lot of fun, but it's also sort of like another low key return that kind of like peters out in a few months. If yeah. I recall correct, yeah, at right? least at least, at least really, he like, gets to the Kenta match, that, that, which is I guess right. the main he, thing. Yeah. But but it's like he came back for the Kenta match, right? Like this thing with Lethal doesn't does it ever get like fully actualized or like yeah. this sort of re no, resumption does. of the Joe versus the Rottweilers feud? It, no, it, they, they do have they do have some blow off matches with Lethal and Key um, in Long Island, as a matter of fact, but. Um, but they never get to the Key versus Joe singles match, which is really what everyone was ultimately oh, right, hoping right, for. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the thing, looking at the schedule, I, I actually looked after this to see how much he worked. And it's, it's like he, we do get the Aries non-title match. We get the Kenta match. We get a few like matches against Joe and Lethal or, or Lethal in the singles. But it's not that Loki isn't around and doing significant matches. It's almost like... This you almost feel like after this angle, like oh shit, you know, Loki's going to be on almost every show, and he really is just here and there for the rest of his run, which is like another right. almost year. And then, of course, the way he leaves in the early next year, where apparently, I mean, we'll get to it when that happens, but apparently, the story was Gabe wanted him to put over Roderick Strong, and then he tried to hold Gabe up for more money. I mean, that's the Ring of Honor side of it. So, yeah, kind of a. This is the last of the many ill-fated runs of Loki, but, yeah. but there will an- be some good stuff on it. But this angle and like the follow-up later is really what m- takes this show from like, you know, a lot of good wrestling to like a big deal show. Also, like the yeah, return- like anything can happen at Ring of Honor, right? Again, in, if, in, in, in New York City, it really feels like ECW in the best way. Like just in terms of like like big angles, violence, you know, hot matches. Just like there's there's a. Um, a continuity and like pacing to this show that I don't think too many other ROH shows have. And I think a lot of it is tied into this whole situation with uh, Joe and lethal and the Rottweilers. 
And it, it's funny because it's kind of a repeat in a lot in in the tone of it in a lot of ways of like the angle they did at Ring of Honor Reborn Completion the year before, which is Loki returns after an absence. He's a big asshole. He lays out Joe and his friends, and you're like. There's just something about where it works just as much this time, even though it's the same thing a year later, and we still haven't got the Joe match. It's still just as cool and just as exciting, even though they, it's just, you know, in some ways it's basically the same ankle, but it's still just so fucking cool. Yeah. But um, it's intermission at this point. We go backstage where Gary Michael Capetta is joined by Nigel McGinnis. Gary says Nigel's win tonight may have been tainted by a low blow. Nigel is incredulous about it. He's like, I had no idea I'd even given a low blow. It wasn't intentional. I didn't do it. He's like, you know, I feel great about winning tonight. If Colt wants a rematch or wants to find me, you know, I'm, I'm not hard to find. So, again, they're, you know, Nigel's pretty good at this point about playing it straight with maybe just the slightest hint that, you know, he's really taking pleasure that he won. But he is, he's not, he's not twirling a mustache at this point. being like, no, I didn't mean it. Like, he's, he's playing it fairly straight. So, I like his acting on this. We then get... An ad for the Ring of Honor Wrestling School featuring a lot of clips of head trainer CM Punk as his theme music plays, which was kind of funny in hindsight, knowing that, like, this guy they're kind of selling the school around would be gone within months. Um, next, we get clips of Spanky wrestling Roderick Strong at, at FIP's Violence is the Answer show. Gabe does a voiceover saying FIP is Ring of Honor's sister promotion, and Spanky wanted clips of this match shown for some reason while he's in Japan, as he wants to send word that while he that he can't wait to get back to Ring of Honor, his Japan commitment is forcing him to miss this show, and he says his one goal is going to be to win a Ring of Honor title belt when he comes back. So, just a little bit of clips, plugs for a couple things. And then we get a match that did not make the show. I only learned this from the live reports. Um, uh, Aaron, one of my favorite things to do on this show, because it never has a really good payoff, is to ask people that were at these shows live to try and remember unfilmed—I mean, shows, matches that got edited off the DVD from shows they watched a decade and a half ago. They never remember any details. Aaron, do you remember Fast see. Eddie defeating da no. Davy Andrews in a short squash match? No. Because that's apparently what happened. Here. I was going to say, was there a Ricky Reyes squash match on this show? But that may have been the next. Yeah. Um, and, and then, and then no. tell us about some other unmemorable things that happened when you were sixteen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, what did you? What did you have? What did you have for homework that night? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, no, I have no recollection of this match. So that brings us to a match that is a lot more memorable. Uh, a dog collar match. Jimmy Rave defeated CM Punk via pinfall in 13 minutes, 38 seconds after he hit a series of chair shots, including three of them right to the head. Uh, before the match starts, we get a clip of the cheese grater attack during Rave's entrance. Uh, Nana is wearing a tuxedo tonight, looking very sharp. He makes Jade Chung be a footstool for Jimmy Rave as usual. He gets his usual shut the fuck up chant from the crowd when he gets on the mic. The crowd then chants Eddie Murphy at him, which is uh, a little problematic, maybe. Um, not, not, not ideal. Yeah. And then there's, there's more, there's more racism coming. So. Yeah. Um, Nana says Jimmy Rave had a sip from a water fountain in a New York subway, which for some reason, just just that phrase is the funniest thing to me. And thus, he is too sick to wrestle tonight. Nana tells Rave to go to the back. Nana says Mike Cruel will take out Punk tonight, just like he, they took out Punk's girlfriends, sprayed him in the eyes, and carved off his tattoo. We then see a clip of Punk being hung by a chain on the previous show, followed by Punk's entrance. Well, I love, Punk, I love the fact that um, Nana is wearing a tuxedo. 
Um, and I don't like the fact that Nana says to Jade Chung, who do you think you are, Jet Li? Like, so that's extra racism. Like, it's just I like, miss that, honestly. Yeah, it's just like, it's bizarre. I, um, I, I, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, but I do have something to say about CM Punk's entrance. Yeah, all I, all I can say about it is Punk comes out with with the dog collar all around his neck and a Steve Candido no gimmicks needed T-shirt. And I believe he's also written Candido on his wrist tape. We get a big Candido chant eventually from the crowd. So this was the first Ring of Honor show that take place after Candido died and his death. I mean, Candido made a big impact on a bunch of the indie wrestlers during his last little indie run. And like you can go back and look at Punk's live journal. He was really crestfallen and distraught about candido's you know very untimely just tragic gone way too soon passing and i think a lot of guys that he worked even briefly with at this time were and so this is the one we we got the graphic at the end of the last ring of honor show that was a nice little tribute to candido but this is the the one big kind of acknowledgement on this show proper i think is you know punk really repping candido here but what did you want to say about Punk's entrance here? Matt? Well, well, besides the besides the, well, before I get to that, the, as far as Candido, you know, the reaction to his his you know untimely death was feels very similar to the way people reacted to Tracy Smothers, like just in terms of like the way the respect that these in, like indie guys had for him, like just like the you know like he just likes like this like this mentor and peer and just like the amazing wrestler, like it just it just you know made me remember that because it was very you know obviously horribly sad. Um, as far as Punk's entrance, okay, so think of this scenario and think of how this makes CM Punk come across. At Stalemate, Jimmy Rave lied and said that he couldn't wrestle, he was injured. He left, CM Punk wrestled Mike Cruel, Rave came out and attacked him after. Now, they're built, they built up, like now Punk is finally going to get his hands on Jimmy Rave in a dog collar match. It's going to be brutal, it's going to be violent, he can't wait to get Jimmy Rave. Jimmy Rave does the same thing again and says he's sick. And CM Punk just comes out, like, all excited, like, yeah, I'm going to have a dog collar match with Mike Cruel now, I guess. Like, <laughs> just, like, just, like, matter-of-factly, he gets, he, 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 they put the collar on him, like, just, like, like, wouldn't you just be like, okay, no, this is bullshit, like, I'm not doing this, like, this is, it just felt very strange to me. They just had CM Punk come out and just be like, okay, like, this is, this, I guess, I guess, I guess he's sick. Like, it just made CM Punk seem, I don't know, made him seem dumb, or just made him seem like... <laughs> His heart's not in this? Like, yeah, I'll just have a dog collar match with anyone. Like, for, for some reason, one of my five favorite moments, I think, in doing this podcast ever is you saying, yeah, I'm going to have a dog collar match with my girl. <laughs> it's such a just – the, just the idea and your delivery. I'm glad, that you, I'm glad that you are so tickled. But, um, but do you see my point? No, no, yeah, absolutely, and um, yeah, so just uh, before I get into thoughts, just quickly, the whole idea is, yeah, Punk comes out, and he just seems very accepting of this, and then before the match can start, Jimmy Ray comes out back from the back, he attacks Punk, you know, revealing he wasn't sick at all, and then eventually they put on the dog call. What and they kind have of insane pet. person wouldn't have seen that coming? Like, what? Like, it's just, yeah. it's, it's so weird. So, yeah, I agree. It is weird that, like, Punk is the guy in multiple of these promos before the show where he was like, I'm going to murder you. You're Like, literally, I'm going to kill you. You know when you're going to die now. And for him to just, like, shrug off that for the second show in a row, this guy's made up a clear excuse to not wrestle him. 
Um, yeah. Oh, also, I noticed he did the triple threat sign on the way out, and the triple threat sign I'm just noticing looks uncomfortably like the new white power symbol. Um, so that's that's weird. Um, more more racism. Yeah, I in wonder the if segment. that's what Drake Younger is doing. <laughs> He's just a big fan of the triple threat. Um, but. You know, Matt, I agree. I think the only uh, the only thing I can offer to that is um, researching this. I've been always referring with a lot lately on the Jimmy Rave stuff to both his shoot interview with RF Video and his uh, two part interview with the Honorable Mention podcast guys. And something Rave mentioned was it was his idea to do this again, like the the opening part where he would fake being sick and then he would once Punk was in the dog collar and the match was like he would attack and reveal and then you'd get the match. I actually like that as a swerve, but maybe because it was rave's idea like punk just felt like he had to go with it i don't know because yeah it is weird that in character punk wouldn't one know exactly what rave was doing and two not be furious that he was trying to weasel out of this again yeah they could do it in a way that didn't make punk just seem like he was just ready willing and able to have a a dog collar match against mike cruel instead you know like you know he'd come out doing a promo being like this is bullshit, you know, and then they could, you know, and then they could like try to manipulate him more and then rave could do the, you know, could do the sneak attack. It just, it just made it seem like too much for just punk to be like, just, okay. So for the match itself, I would say this match is good. Not great. I think it's biggest strength is just like much like the Nigel Colt match, it is different than everything else on the show. This is um a you know a bloody gimmick match. Um in fact I would say I you know I asked you about this Matt like when I re rewatched this match oh few oh, like a week ago. This in my opinion there might be a bloodier match, but off the top of my head, this feels like the second bloodiest match we have seen in Ring of Honor up to this point. It, it, it would still be behind Jay Briscoe and Samoa Joe, but Punk bleeds early. And we've talked in the past about Punk is one of the most underrated bladers in his generation. It seems like he doesn't blade often, but when he does, it's almost always just an insane amount. This is he topped himself here because he blades very early and he is at some points in this match, the literal proverbial crimson mask where sometimes people say that and it just means, Oh, he had a fair bit of blood. No, there's a couple moments in this match where all you see is like his eyes and his mouth and the rest is just blood. And it, it, you know, at at some points it kind of waxes and wanes, you know, the way blood flow works, but, but like it is a crazy visual at points in this match. And, I would say that's the strength of this match because my problem with this match would be, you know, when you think of a dog collar match, you think of all the possibilities, just like a strap match where maybe someone will hit the other guy with a wadded up part of it, the chain. Maybe he'll choke the guy. Maybe they'll like one guy will be on the top rope, but the other guy will tug him off with the chain. And, you know, maybe they'll find all sorts of sorts of innovative ways to use the chain or the strap. And this was a match where, it's a chain match where they don't use the chain that much. And when they do, it's usually Jimmy Rave. Like, there's a spot early where they're both standing outside and Rave pulls Punk into the, the ring post using the chain. There's a moment where he chokes Punk. Like, he gets the chain, I think, in his mouth or something. And there's a couple spots like that. But they don't really explore the – it's more like another big brawl match that happens to have a chain in it that might be because this chain seems incredibly long raven interviews has said that this mat the chain was actually very heavy and kind of unwieldy to work with he points out a spot where he's trying to uh 
Pepsi plunge punk and punk backdrops him and Rave says something to like like the chain almost hung him like it got snagged or something like and basically he made it sound like it was really a lot harder to work with the chain than maybe they thought going in but really this as far as a match like there's some brawling and it's kind of also just maybe a bit closer to a more traditional indie match than you think but just the blood makes it different the blood makes it a spectacle like i'm not a person that always thinks blood makes matches better but this is a match where i felt like every moment of it was compelling because of how bloody cm punk was and i i can't deny that i even felt like there were some moments where you know it wasn't great from punk like i thought punk did a really bad looking pepsi twist clothesline he hits a couple power bombs which punk hardly ever does power bombs and i think when you watch how how good they look you can see why he doesn't do them very often because they don't look that great but i still think this was match was really memorable and enjoy like it wasn't one of the best matches on the show but it was one of the most memorable matches on the show and I will always remember that crazy amount of blood. And yeah, uh, Aaron, what did you think? I mean, uh, just a crazy bloodbath. And I, it's it's yeah. weird to see that kind of bleeding live. Like the first indie show I ever went to was like a small little Canadian indie. And I just, the, I don't remember any of the matches on the show. All I remember is that someone bled on my shoe. And I thought that was really cool as a teenager. And uh, so I don't know how you feel about blood in wrestling, but certainly yeah, if no, I you like it. it yeah, yeah. This, this is a sick blade job. I mean, I think it's more, it's better to think of this, I guess, for me as like more of an extended angle than a wrestling match in some ways, because it was like, I think we all knew going in the cage match for Chicago was booked and we all sort of, you know, knew that was going to be the blow off of the feud. But um, yeah, this was fun. It was heated. And I thought that the finishing sequence of like, those chair shots are just sick. He really just like fucking brains them. And you're just like, and it's like, and it's interesting. You like don't really see. It's funny because like you see chair shots in wrestling, and it's always like, oh, it's like a distraction finish in the chair shot, or you rarely just see someone beat someone by just like bashing them in the head with a chair like three times in a row. Um, it was just like very brutal and violent, um, and it looked great. And Punk was bleeding a gusher, and so yeah, just like an effective hot, 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 you know, sort of like 15 minute segment um, and, you know, leading into the big, the big, the big cage match. Uh, Matt, I mean, crazy amount of blood. I mean, we, we haven't seen that much blood very often doing the show. No, I mean, there were, there were spots where like, I was like, man, his, like his eyes must be full of blood. Like I've, you know, I've luckily in my life to this point, never had a situation where I had a massive bleeding from like the top of my head or forehead where I've gotten like blood in my eyes. So I don't know what that's like, but I can imagine it's, it's bad (laughs) to to feel. And, um, yeah, I mean, there was just no way that he's like, wasn't like, didn't have like blood blocking his vision. And it was just... Gabe at one point said it was like a horror movie, and it kind of was. Like, yeah. you really don't see too many horror movies where people's faces are covered in real blood the way this this person was here in this ballroom in uh, at the New Yorker Hotel. Like, boy, what a weird setting to to just be walking around with a face covered <laughs> in blood. I guess it was kind of like The Shining, if it's going to be like a horror movie, um, you know, hotel. Yeah, never mind. Um, but. Um, <laughs> Um, I should have gone. I, I didn't put the hotel in shot, even though you had just said the words hotel until you you, you reiterated. But I should have, that deserved more, Matt. That honestly deserved more. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's all I ever wanted. Um, the, the, I would say so. This match, 
as a match was not as good as the Raven versus Punk Dog Collar match. But in some ways, I think it was like hotter, like in just in terms of like intensity and like the crowd just going nuts for everything. You know, I, I do think that the crowd was more with this the whole way than they were for that one. And I and I think, you know, whatever this match lacked as far as, you know, great wrestling match, like, you know, like uh, pacing and stuff, I think it was really exciting the whole time. Like, would you agree with that? Like, it was never boring. The crowd was, like, pumped for it. It was intense. Um, there was, uh, there was, um, uh, you know, you know, blood, and there were guts. Um, not actual guts, but you know, CM Punk he showed a lot of guts. Um, but you know, you know, like like big moves, and uh, you know, some some uh, decent kickouts. Um, no, oh, and almost like Aaron was saying, like I agree, like you know, it's almost like a big angle. You know, I mean, it yeah. was a match, but but I mean. It, it goes, to, you know, you don't always need something to be a traditional, like, meat and potatoes, good wrestling match to be an entertaining thing on a wrestling show. And absolutely, I think, yeah, like, I agree. Like, whatever this is as a match, it's more as just an event, you know. Yeah, it was really, it was really entertaining and really exciting. Um, there, besides the blood grossing me out, as a germaphobe, I also freaked out when Rave put the chain in Punk's mouth. I was just oh, like, yeah. that chain's been on the floor, it's been on the mat, <laughs> like, just like, watch, you know, watch what you put in your mouth, man. Um, but, um, the other thing that I noticed about this, like, the just, it, not that it was about, this isn't about the match itself, but it's just something that struck me about this moment in ROH, the way the crowd was reacting to CM Punk, because, you know, on some shows in the Northeast, CM Punk doesn't get the desired reaction, like at the Rexplex, right? Like, his matches don't, don't always get over the way that you would think, and he wasn't treated like the pure baby face that he's supposed to. This, at this show, he was treated like a god, right? Like, he was, like, the crowd just loved him. And I don't know that there was ever a moment in ROH to this day where there were two top baby faces, like almost like a Steve Austin in The Rock, the way that Samoa Joe and CM Punk came across on this show. Like they both came off like just absolute like top level ultimate baby faces. Um, and you know, like that's really cool. Like that's like that's a cool thing for two indie guys to reach that that moment. And obviously Punk would be gone soon and he would turn heel even before that. But can you think of another era in ROH where they had, never mind two, even one babyface that was as beloved as Punk and Joe both were on this no, show? And the only thing that even get it doesn't even get close, but the only thing I could even offer as an example might be the vibe of the very first few shows where you had like Danielson and Low Key. Like, but even that I don't think comes close to this, but you still had like that did have the feeling of these are the two best like wrestlers on all the indies and they're both guys we love. And then yeah. you kind of had Christopher Daniels be like the heel counterbalance. But even that I don't think, you know, like. I don't think people were as invested in the promos and the character, obviously, of Loki and Brian Danielson at that point. And no, I mean, with- Dan- Danielson didn't even have a character. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is, di- I mean, this is different because, like, so, you know, when I, when I was trying to go through and think about, like, the, who was the top, like, not just the top guy, but the top babyface in ROH and all these different eras, like, there were certain moments where they didn't even really have one, you know? 
And like like even early on in Joe's title reign, he wasn't a pure babyface. Um, you know, and you could say Homicide was, and Homicide definitely was for a few months in 2006, but it was kind of short lived. You know, maybe at certain points you could say the Briscoes were, but like when when Danielson was the champion, he was mostly a heel. When McGinnis was the champion, he was mostly a heel. Um, you know, when um, when Aries, Aries was the champion. Heel. Yeah, like just like who are the top ba- like in this in th- at this moment it's very clear there are two top and they are just absolute pure baby faces that you want to see succeed that are the biggest stars that you're going to pay to see and it really did feel like an Austin and Rock type situation and it just it just made me think about how unique that is in ROH you know going on you know 20 years. So I completely agree. I just have a couple notes from listening to all these Jimmy Rave shoot interviews because he's one of the only wrestlers from this era of Ring of Honor that's really done like extensive interviews about what they did in Ring of Honor in this era. You know, we got some stuff for 2004, 2003, but this era is a little harder to come by. And um, a couple notes he had in the match. First off, he mentioned something that I had to go back because I didn't notice at first. He always talks about how he loves Prince Donna, but sometimes Prince Donna would like kind of screw things up. And Prince Donna at this point, late in the match, where, you know, to set up the big brutal chair shots to end the match, Nana's supposed to slide a chair in the ring. And Rave points out Nana slides the chain the, the chair so hard it goes in one part of the ring and falls right out the other. And you can see Punk look at it if you go back and know to look for it. And he just has this laugh like, what the fuck? And then eventually someone gets the chair in. But you can clearly see Punk just being like, oh what, like what the fuck, man? You like this is the end of the match. And then another thing is those chair shots are the, – the match does end with – there's five chair shots. I would say three to the head. Punk kind of tries to duck down a little bit, but they're still pretty hard chair shots to the head. And apparently, according to Rave, that was Punk's idea. Rave was kind of hesitant to do them. But um, Punk wanted to play up the idea that he's going after an old injury because for those who don't know, pre-Ring of Honor – uh, CM Punk fractured his skull in a match in 2002 before he even got to Ring of Honor. You can actually see the match he fractures his skull, and it's uh, against Reckless Youth at the Jersey J Cup. I believe it's on YouTube because I rewatched part of it for this show, actually. And um, Punk does a blockbuster, and his head basically gets sandwiched between the mat and um, Reckless Youth's head. They kind of collide, and that fractures his skull. Punk wrestles like the rest of the match. You don't, you wouldn't even really know that he had a problem. But then if you listen to like a Punk shoot interview he did for our video, like in 2003 or 2004, uh, 2003 probably, um, he, he just talks about like he was out of wrestling for two months and he was like sensitive to light and horrendous headaches. And just, it sounds like incredibly harrowing. And apparently Punk, you know, basically he wanted these chair shots to play off of that history. But I felt kind of bad because I was like, how many people know that were watching this knew that history because the announcers don't really mention it. Punk alludes to it in his promo, but he even, he doesn't spell it out. Like it's a pre ring of honor injury that happened at the Jersey Jacob. And I feel like punk gave so much of himself in this feud. And I feel kind of bad because I feel like as much as he gave, the feud was good, but he like, you know, bled buckets and took unprotected territory. Like it felt like he was trying to make this as big a feud as the Raven feud. And he was doing like 10 times more than he did in the Raven feud. And he still didn't quite get there. Like he was doing, doing like every bell and whistle you could to make this feud huge. Um, it, it is, it is still remembered though, as a really like, good, feud. it's not like, it's not like the feud didn't like, it's not like it didn't work. 
you know, it were just just rave. They they didn't they couldn't they didn't quite get rave. I think to the level that they wanted to, but it definitely made him. You know, I mean, he definitely was more over after than he was before. I think you know maybe they just didn't follow up with him enough after it. You know, like they, they took too long to heat rave back up after that feud. But uh, moving on. After the match, the embassy lays the boots to Punk. Rave lays in more punches until Colt Cabana, James Gibson, Dixie, and Asriel chase them away. Gibson, for some inexplicable reason, came with a weapon from the back. And what that weapon was, was a, like, drink cooler. It's the most hilarious thing. He throws it from the ring to Nana, who, like, it doesn't hit Nana. And Nana then throws it back in the ring. And for some reason, that just made me burst out laughing that James Gibson just comes out with a drink cooler like as a weapon. We then cut to a graphic that says 15 minutes later, which is the most unconvincing 15 minutes later graphic I've ever seen. It's hard to believe that they had 15 minutes of this. Um, Punk is still laying in the ring. His friends are trying to help him to his feet. He pushes them off angrily. He eventually gets up to his feet on his own, although he keeps falling over. He's really selling the chair shots, the blood loss, everything. He has to literally crawl on his hands and knees to the back at certain points. I can imagine that, that it's not completely selling, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Um, he stands right at the entrance and we get a big CM Punk chant as the camera shoots him from behind and the camera shot, it's all blown out from the light. And it's something I'll describe as like unintentionally cool. Like I bet you they didn't mean to make the shot all blown out like that. It actually does look cool. It's actually kind of an iconic image even in ROH. Yeah. Like they use it in video packages and stuff. Like it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the great actually camera shots that they, that they'd ever done at that point. Definitely. Um, the camera follows Punk back through the curtain. He starts laughing. James, James Gibson screams for a doctor. Punk says he's figured out that Jimmy doesn't want to make it to Chicago. Punk says after spraying him in the eyes with bug spray, taking out his girlfriend, beating him in his hometown, trying to cripple him emotionally and physically, the thing that's really crossing the line is going after his head. Punk says Rave knew the biggest in, in, injury he ever sustained was his cracked skull. Punk says concussion or not, missing pints of blood, he'll be locked inside a steel cage with Rave in one week where no one can interfere. Punk tells Rave to take a good look at his wife before next week and says he's going to send him home in a box. Uh, Shelley's, Alex Shelley's music starts playing in the background for the last three of this promo. And Ring of Honor did this unique thing they usually didn't do where they kept cutting between the promo and Alex Shelley's entrance. And I felt kind of bad because it was like Alex Shelley never gets his moment kind of because, you know, this is the biggest match of Alex Shelley's Ring of Honor run. And his whole entrance is intercut with really the focus is all on Punk's promo, as in, in some ways it should be, but it just, I guess they couldn't squeeze it in. Although, to be fair, a lot of guys, even in main events in ROH, get their entrances cut out anyway, so I guess, you know, he wouldn't be the first. (laughs) And that brings us to the Ring of Honor world title match. I do just want to mention about that promo. Oh, go on. Um, I feel like they were really trying to go for, like, a parallel to the WrestleRave promo. You know, which was also completely bloodied CM Punk walking to the back. And people are like, calm down, Punk, calm down, Punk. And then he just cuts this really intense promo. And, and, I, and I feel like that's what they were going for here. Um, you know, the, just like the, the kind of like the setup, it was just extremely similar. Um, and, and I thought it was really good. I thought it was the best Punk promo in a long time. I thought it was the best punk promo of this feud. And I guess I was just say like, I agree. Like, I guess that's all going back to what I was saying before, where it's not that I don't really like the Jimmy Ray CM punk feud. I just feel like they are so clearly trying to do another punk Raven level feud. 
and like it, it, it because it's similar in certain like tropes and beats you know the dog collar match the huge blood the, the the same you know punk hasn't gone this level of intense in his promos since the raven feud i think even the daniels prophecy feud that kind of got you know aborted it is not as intense as this in terms of his promos and it's just i, I it's not that the, the the things they're doing aren't good i think it's more the the Raven feud was about Punk feeling like Raven was this guy who blew chances because he was an alcoholic and he resents him for the drugs and the alcoholism and incorporates you know the dad my dad was a drinker and I how much of that is true feelings or not I could suspend disbelief for that I think the difference between that feud and this one is it's just as intense but I can't suspend my disbelief I don't believe that Punk really feels like Jimmy Rave stole his identity when he took a cheese grater to his stomach you know I don't believe that Punk really wants jimmy rave to die where the things punk was saying in the raven feud uh, i i could suspend disbelief it i felt like yeah maybe punk does feel that way about raven i um i also think you know one of the big things about the punk raven feud is that the up-and-comer like did really impressive character work and promos and you know jimmy rave has you know he's improved a lot but he has not done that yeah, it's mostly Nana, and Nana's right. my quirk is more comical. Right. You know, it's right. supposed to be kind of like the buffoonish heel. Right. But um, that brings us to what on paper was the main event, the Ring of Honor World title match. Austin Aries successfully defends the title, defeating Alex Shelley via pinfall in 19 minutes, 32 seconds after he hits the 450 splash. Aaron, you, you, you will, you're going to get first go on this because you alluded earlier about how maybe this didn't quite live up to maybe the excitement many people like you had about this match. I'll say there was one person live very into this match. I'll, I'll first give a quote to you from Sean Radican at the PW Torch, who was also there live. He wrote, this was just an excellent title defense for Aries, and on the level of some of Samoa Joe's best Ring of Honor World title defenses, I found this match to be better than the cage match between Cabana and Aries in February, which was very good. So some people did absolutely love this match. It certainly, it was the longest match on the show. It was put in the main event of spot. Uh, what did you think? How did it, you know, go to your, you know, obviously talking about your love of Shelley earlier, you know, big expectations. Yeah, I mean, I loved this match at the time. Like, live, I loved the match. I thought it was great. I was with it the whole way. Shelly losing was a bummer. Um, but watching it back, it just felt like it just, it never quite got to that next level. Like, I think it's a very good match. There's nothing sort of, like, wrong with it. But it just never gets to that sort of, like, high, high level. And it feels maybe like it lacked some nastiness that maybe should have been in there given, given what the feud had been Um, like it's intense and they're fighting for the world title, but you're, you sort of like, it doesn't feel like there's anything in the match that really speaks to the one year history of their relationship. Um, But I feel like it's very good, but it just doesn't get to that, that next level. And then I also, but I do feel like satisfied in the sense that like this is sort of this conclusion of the generation next, the original generation next story, right? Like mm-hmm. they sort of like continue this for a few shows. Like there's a couple of Alex Shelley versus Roderick Strong matches, but this is really sort of like the conclusion of like this group comes up, you know, Shelley's the leader, then Aries emerges, you know, they sort of few, they sort of this subtle tension building, Aries wins the title and kicks him out. Um, and then this is sort of like the clu- conclusion of that story. 
And, you know, in the next few months, we will see sort of a different version of Generation Next and a different version of Alex Shelley. You know, it's also the the sort of pinnacle of the Roderick and Evans um, tag team. And so it feels like it's nice that there's sort of a conclusion of a story, because I think that in like a year long story, in the sense that, like, you know, there's so many frustrated, aborted Ring of Honor stories yeah. um, during this time period, you know, that it just like feels good that like, yeah, these guys came up together. They, you know, just sort of it's nice when there's a story that has, has a, be- a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh, before I throw it to Matt, one thing I want to ask you, like kind of going back to that, I'll just say at first, I, I agree with a lot with what you your view of the match. But did it feel like to you like I felt like the crowd at was as into this match as any, like at the start of the match, it does feel like a super important match. Like there are big, like legit dueling chants at the start of the match where like, you can tell some different voices at each of the chants. It's not just everyone shouting for both guys. Like to me, this feel like, I don't know. Do you agree or not? Like this felt like the crowd, like the crowd was ready for this to be a classic match and it yes. didn't quite get there. Like I, I yes. felt like, like if yes. these guys had Absolutely. done a little bit better, like this, yes. the crowd was up for it. Oh yeah. I mean, cause I think going in, there were a lot of people who were like, this is the night for Alex Shelley. Um, and sort of in the storyline, like it would have made sense. And yeah, I think, yeah, it was a hot crowd. Yeah. I think, I think if this has been a great match and Shelley had won, the crowd would have lost its shit. Yeah, um, Matt, what do you think? I mean, again, I, I think the crowd really into this match, but maybe I, – I'll, I'll say this, Matt. I, I, you know, sometimes we disagree. A lot of times we agree. I'm willing to bet money you do not agree with Sean Radikin that this was on the level of the best Samoa Joe world title defenses. Um. Yeah, 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 I guess not. <laughs> no, no, I yeah, – no, <laughs> You scared me. I was going to take out my wallet. It, <laughs> it, oh, take it out. Um, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, no, it, um, don't edit that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, um, yeah, no, it was, I thought it was like a really, 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 really good match. Um, but yes, I agree. It was not the kind of match that would get to that classic status. And I think, yeah, I think in one extent, one in one sense, yeah, maybe it was missing like the personal nastiness and like hatred that you would maybe think these two guys would have. But on the other hand, I think maybe all it needed was them to slow down a bit. You know, like they worked a really like fast-paced, exciting, athletic match with like a lot of good moves, good execution. But when you think about the classic world title matches, you know, they're not getting faster down the stretch, right? They're selling more. They're slowing down. Yeah. They're, you know, they're 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 emoting, you know, with their faces and expressing things and um you know, and really like emphasizing the big moves, and they don't do that here. Um, um, as far as like the tone, like do they, um, like like should it have been a hate filled match? I think you know, on the surface, I would say yes. I think you could also maybe make the argument that their whole rivalry is sort of over. This like they're both great athletes, and they're just trying to out out athlete each other. And, you know, I think that might be okay too, but I think no matter what, if they really wanted to get to that, like, all-timer level that, like you said, the crowd seemed to be ready for, I I do think that, you know, maybe just slow it down, you know, like, work, work a little bit of a slower pace, you know, you still do all the cool stuff, but maybe put some more space 
time to breathe in between the stuff they did. Not like it was like mile a minute, but it was it wasn't like a world title match pace. You know, when you think of the great world title matches. Um, that said. You know, the athleticism was awesome. The moves were great. Um, you know, it did, you know, like it did have, you know, some some story stuff. You know, Ares was definitely like seeming desperate and, you know, would do like do the fish hook and like, you know, kind of a little bit of dirty stuff. But ultimately, he won because he was the better man. Uh, but and I do also think that this, besides just people wanting Shelly to win, I do think Ares is getting to the point in this title reign where people are starting to believe he could lose. And people absolutely believed some of uh some of Shelley's near falls especially when he uh avoided the, the 450 hit the super kick and then immediately hit the shell shock the crowd just like they bought that near fall for sure um and uh you know it, uh, uh Aries ended up winning with the combo that he beat Samoa Joe with which showed you know I guess you know tried to put Shelley on that level like where Aries needed to really pull out his his best stuff to beat to beat Shelley, but the, that's uh, that's what I think was missing. It was a little bit of the high drama, but th- it was well worked. Like it was it was a damn good match, and um, one of Aries' better title defenses. Uh, I mean, the top three so far would be Cabana, Gibson, and um, and Shelley. And I'm not exactly sure which order I'd put them in. I, I I I'd been saying the Cabana match was the best, and I do think it had the most drama, but. I don't know. I think this this is pretty close. I, I could I'd have to watch them back to back, but either one of these could be Aries' best title defense so far. I think this. I agree with both of you guys. I think this is a very good, but not quite great match. And I think the problem is, it, it's basically the place on the card that kind of hurts in that sense. Because if this match was just a random mid card match, you'd be super pumped to have a match this good. But unfortunately, because it's the main event on a big, well remembered Ring of Honor show, it has this really cool feud going into it the crowds pumped for it it just being very good actually turns out to be a little disappointing which is kind of an unfair expectation sometimes but you know these guys are good enough that there was expectations that yeah. big to begin with and they the were main, in a the, big spot the main event is the main event you know you get the spot it, you get yeah. the expectations yeah yeah exactly it's yeah it's just, it's a it's a tougher spot and um i i uh, matt i thought you made a great point i never thought really thought of it that way but like how the match could have slowed down in, in the last quarter because I feel like that kind of you put into words something I couldn't quite consciously think of, but the idea of like this match doesn't like I wrote in my notes, this match was like the last 20 minutes of a 30 minute match where it kind of cut out the slow first 10. And in a way that sounds great, but I couldn't get then why I was feeling like something was missing. And I think your point is perfect, which is like, because it already kind of starts in second or third gear, it doesn't really change that much in the final bit. Like it does, yes, there are the big near falls at the end, but the, like it doesn't really get that epic tone because it doesn't feel that much different than the start because the start's already pretty fast and action packed. And um, yeah, I, I felt like Ares worked really hard. I thought Shelly looked good too, but I felt like Shelly he's the guy like Aaron was talking about how he could have used some more emotion from this match. And I agree. And I felt like it was more on Shelly, like to Shelly, to me watching this match, I felt like this was a standard good Shelly performance. Like, but the way he worked it, it didn't feel like this match was any more important to him than any good mid card match he'd have where, you know, I, I just wanted, it didn't even have to be anger. It just had to be 
I just wanted to see something different from him in this match. I want him to make me feel like it was his biggest match of his life. And the, instead, gravi- the gravitas. Exactly. Instead, yeah. I felt like the crowd thought this was a big match, and I felt like Shelley worked this like it was just another Ring of Honor match that he was going to work hard at, but not necessarily harder than, I say, like against Jimmy Jacobs at Joe versus Punk 2 or something. And and But... I, I thought still it was a very good match. And again, it's another one of those matches like the uh, the Jay Lethal Joe match where kind of the story makes you want the underdog face to win. Like I remember waiting for the results when I was a young guy watching, you know, w- couldn't watch the show live obviously back then, but waiting for the results. I really want Shelly to win and being so disappointed. But that's something that, you know, Ring of Honor would do to make these championship runs strong is sometimes you'd have a guy that in storyline, you would think, you know, this is their time, like the baby face moment. And they just would lose clean as a whistle. You know, they just weren't good enough. And, you know, it can be disappointing in the moment, but that's also what makes strong title reigns where like guys get sacrificed on the altar, so to speak, you know, where Shelly doesn't get his moment. And in a way, it does hurt Shelly a little bit where, you know, he's wronged. He lays it all out on the line, like how he needs to get revenge and he doesn't get revenge ever. He get he loses clean definitively here. And but yet that does put over Aries, you know, it's some, and I, I think the one thing that's, that maybe people think about sometimes lately is like in modern wrestling, so much of the booking is about how to keep everyone strong. Like if this guy loses, we got to do something to keep him strong. And sometimes in wrestling for someone to gain something, someone does have to lose something. And I think like, I think in a match like this, like Shelly does lose a little momentum. And I think it does make Aries look a little bit better. Like there's a transfer when you do a match like this. And that's, part of wrestling that I think sometimes bookers now try to avoid, but it, it sometimes you need it. But um, before Bobby Cruz can even finish announcing Aries win, the lights go out. Homicide's music hits this time. Audi comes with low key and Julius smokes. They face off with Aries in the ring. Shelly is quickly long gone. He, he, he just snuck to the back. Aries no, but that, leaves, but that's but, another, that's another thing that's not, totally great for Shelly that he just he loses but he becomes like an afterthought which yeah uh, maybe not the best optics for him and, and combine that with the entrance where again where he was kind of his entrance kind of takes a backseat to a punk promo it, yeah it, you know Shelly does again it kind of makes Shelly look like this wasn't the start of something big for him it was sort of like the end of something big for him but um yeah so outcomes um smokes Keej, everybody um Shelly's now long gone. Aries leaves and Aries eventually leaves and Joe and Lethal run out from the back. They attack Homicide and Keith from behind. They hit them with a double tope. Eventually they get back in the ring. The bell rings. We get an impromptu, unscheduled main event, a rarity for Ring of Honor. The Rottweilers of Homicide and Low Key defeat Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe in 9 minutes, 13 seconds when Homicide pins Lethal after he hits the feigned, one of my favorite wrestling moves ever, the double stomp cop killer, where he gets lethal in the cop killer position. Key comes from the top and hits the double stomp, and then, you know, Homicide drives down as he hits the double stomp. And Matt, what did you think of this match? It also, isn't it crazy that in wrestling today, like, you can, you'll never see things like a show end, a Ring of Honor show end with Homicide hitting the cop killer on Jay Lethal. <laughs> so for those who listen, like, way in the future, we're recording this the day after Ring of Honor's 19th anniversary show, which features Homicide coming back and hitting Jay Lethal with a cop killer. So the more things change, the more things stay the same. This one had a hotter crowd when it happened, though. Definitely. Uh, um, yeah, this is another match that was more of an angle than a match, right? 
Um, yeah. You know, like, you know, and so they, they, you know, they do their moves. Um, you know, like the Homicide does a, a super fast Tope Con Hilo. There's one, like the first big spot. It's very interesting. Like, because um, Lethal is holding Loki upside down on the top rope and Joe does a running boot to him. Like, but the way that Lethal gets to the top rope is just very weird. Like, Lethal, like, runs at Joe and Joe, like, like hoists him up and he and lethal ends up like straddling the top rope and then like or like actually lying across it then he straddles like it's just like what it's just a very like what we like what's happening here and then it just ends up being um being that spot which is a really cool spot um gabe again calls monster mac one of their gang members i'm never gonna let this go um <laughs> but um yeah so it's, it's a bunch of moves you know homicide does a leg drape ddt on lethal and key hangs lethal in the tree of woe so homicide could do a basement drop kick then uh uh, Key does that, the Tree of Woe stomp onto Lethal, which is assisted by Homicide. And that move, no matter how many times he does it, gets a holy shit chant. Um, right? Like, that's just, like, the coolest move. Um, yeah. And um, there's a somewhat weird spot where Homicide jumps off the middle rope toward Lethal, stops short, and hits an Ace Crusher. Like, I thought they saved it pretty well, but I, 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 I like, 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 Homicide saw Lethal's reversal coming, but I don't think... That's what they were going for, um, but um, yeah. So so but so lethal escapes a pile driver by crawling through homicide's legs, and homicide avoids the dragon suplex twice and goes to tag in Loki. But lethal pulls him back, hits the dragon, and tags in Joe. And and Joe just goes insane. You know, st Joe on Loki overhead belly to belly on homicide. Um, homicide saves Loki from the uh, from the muscle buster. Um, and you know, drop kicks him, and then like Joe is is leaning over the middle rope, facing the outside of the ring, and that gets Key to uh, allows Key to hit a double stomp with Joe in that position, which is such a such a cool double stomp. Lethal is, I mean, uh, Loki is the master of the double stomp. Like just when he does it, it's just like it's always amazing. And I feel like this match, you feel like he's sort of perfected it, like the timing and the execution. Like, it's just like the art of the double stomp in this match. Um, um, then, uh, Loki hit, uh, drop kicks, uh, uh, lethal in the corner. No, excuse me, hits, drop kicks Joe into the corner and goes up top for the double stomp, but lethal catches him. Loki knocks him off into the clutches of Homicide, and that's when they do the double team, uh, double stop cop killer. Now, I do want to say one thing about this move. Like, it's sold as the most devastating move, like, ever, and, like, it should be. Like, it's really, really cool. Like, it's like, but they do it in a much safer way than it seems. Because the way that obviously this move would be extra dangerous is if Loki hit the double stomp as. Homicide was driving Lethal down into the mat. But that's not what they do. Loki jumps off, stomps Lethal's butt, and then Homicide does the cop kill. And it's like separate movements. And so really the double stomp doesn't do much to change what goes on in the cop kill. So I think they actually do it pretty safely, but it still looks awesome anyway. And um, yeah, I thought th- this match was like all about intense intensity and like how impromptu it was and unpredictability. Like it wasn't about building to this like, you know, great crescendo. It was just like 
short to the point, memorable spots like but it also just tied the whole show together and it made it seem special and it like made a statement like, okay, Loki is back, they've injured Jay Lethal, they've made a statement, this show like really mattered, and there's sort of like new shit going down. And I think that it was, you know, one of the best final segments ever. One of the best show long angles they ever did, also. I agree that like um this was, I would say, much like the uh, Punk uh, Rave match. It was kind of like, I wouldn't say it was totally an angle, but it wasn't totally a match. It was like halfway between an angle and a match. I would almost call this like, this is like dessert at the end of the show. Because most of the match, I mean, this match is good. I wouldn't say it's great, but there's great moments within it. Most of the matches, lethal just getting beaten down by the two most intimidating badasses in Ring of Honor at this point, probably, in terms of just being menacing, low-key and homicide. And I think the part of this match, though, I love is the couple interactions with Loki and Samoa Joe. And every time I see one of them, I always love it. And I always get pissed off that we never like they kept teasing something that we were never going to get. And what I love about these interactions is, you know, Joe is such a badass and such a strong character and so protected in some ways. And he carries himself so strong that, like, there are very few wrestlers at, the, at this point in this promotion that Joe will or even could like sell big for and you would buy it like earlier while I was having a hard time buying, you know, him going down from one lethal slap. Like whenever he wrestles low key, he sells so big and you he's low key's one of the only guys who carries himself in such a way where like you buy that, like not just could low key beat Joe, he could kick his fucking ass. Like there's a moment here where Joe takes like a shotgun drop kick from low key and he just sells it huge or the same with like that double stop where he's in the ropes. He like Joe sells so much big bigger for key than most guys and you buy it you you're like yeah you better like joe better be fucking scared of low key because low key could, could potentially like beat the living shit out of this guy and there are very few wrestlers i think at this point that have the credibility in their character and the way they work and the way they carry themselves where they could do that and where joe could sell that big and it just makes it every interaction they have is so fucking just cool and exciting because of that but aaron this was the end of uh, the show, uh, at least in the building. And uh, yeah, like, like we rarely got this in Ring of Honor. This is a very ECW kind of the impromptu thing. We rarely got this in Ring of Honor. And if it was done to death, it'd probably be annoying. But I thought this was really cool in Ring of Honor because we rarely got this kind of uh, impromptu kind of crazy end to the show. Yeah, this was great. It just felt like, you know, yeah, it's surprise. It just it's cool and wrestling surprises you and, it, and, 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 and you just, um, yeah, it feels like you're, you're at like a lot, you know, I mean, that's what makes wrestling so special, right? It's like this sort of live and it's interactive and it's, and you have, you know, it's just like in the moment and it's, yeah, no, it's, it, it was great. Um, the double stop, like the pop for the double stop cop killer is like, you know, incredible. Just like, I, I feel like it's just like an iconic moment in this company's history um, and just like a great ending to an awesome show where I yelled and screamed and <laughs> sweated and like, yeah, just one of like, I, you know, the new, the New Yorker hotel ring of honor crowds are just like really some of the best, you know, up there, up there with, you know, Reseda, I think in terms of like the best pro wrestling crowds I've been in. And it was just like, Oh, yeah, this is great. I couldn't I think you nailed it when you described it as the dessert. Couldn't couldn't be better. 
And uh, the only thing, other thing I mentioned, I guess we should, I should note is uh, Joe's arm is all bandaged up, and uh, Gabe says that's from Joe fell through the when he fell through the table against Jay Lethal. So I don't know if he legit really cut up his arm or something, because it is all bandaged up in a way it isn't for the Lethal match. So if he cut himself in that, I did not know us during that match, but it sounds very plausible. So I thought that was interesting. But um, after the match, the Rottweilers celebrate on the outside. Uh, Dave Prezak on commentary says something like, you know, Jay Lethal's lucky, his neck isn't broken, and Gabe does the classic Gabe Oversell where he's like, surely it is broken. Kind, of, like, kind, of a, hey. kind of an Owen Hart voice, even. Yeah, like, it's Which, like... yeah. You can, you can see right there, like, the difference in commentary styles where, like, one guy's trying to sell it in a realistic way, and one guy's just going as big as he can get, even if it's not realistic, because one guy's trying to say, well, he could have had his neck broken, the other guy's like, no, Jay Lethal's neck is broken, which is why, of course, we'll definitely see him on the next show. <laughs> but um, uh, although I will, fan- say, I do, I do will say Lethal is out for a little while, like a month or so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah I guess a broken neck could heal in a month. <laughs> <laughs> I'll test that out tonight. No. Um. So at this point, as uh, Key's walking to the back, he's you know facing the ring. One fan puts bunny ears behind Low Key's head, and he doesn't notice. And right after that, like Gabe's like, pray for Jay Lethal. And that's just a funny – I think the bunny ears is going to be the picture for the show. It's a great little thing. Whoever did that, you're a dick, but also funny. Um, we Aaron, go was back it to, you? Was it you, Aaron? <laughs> do you have long red hair, Aaron? I, uh, I do not. It was not me. I was in the general admissions. Or no, I was in the second row, uh, but not not behind the entrance, unfortunately. Hunt for Aaron, anyone watching the show, second row. Every time, every time there's someone I know, I, I'm glad I didn't know you were in the crowd for the show because anytime there's someone that like we've had on the show or that I recognize that I know is at one of these shows, I spend the whole show distracted looking for them in the crowd. Well, Escape, so Escape, Escape from New York is the only ROH show I can think of where I am on camera almost the entire time. It's awkward. God damn it. <laughs> anyway, uh, we go backstage. We find uh, Jimmy Raven, Prince Nana. Rave has a bunch of punks blood on him. Nana says they beat Punk fair and square tonight. Next week, he wants Rave to put Punk in his grave. Nana says that just like the military in Ghana dies for him, Rave has to die next week to be the biggest part of the embassy, which felt like Nana going heavy in a way that maybe doesn't fit his character. Like, he's now saying, like, you gotta die. Um, Rave says Punk doesn't scare him. He's beaten AJ Styles, and next week, Punk is just another stepping stone. So this felt like they were trying to do a serious promo that was rare even from the embassy to try and really up the stakes here. But again, it, just something about Prince Nana, of all people, being like, you've got to kill CM Punk, you've got to die, it, it, it doesn't quite fit for me. But um, next, we see a clip of of. Prior of a prior Brian Danielson homicide match, Gabe tells us that their best of five series will end at the next show in a steel cage match. The winner will get a future world title shot. Then we get a James Gibson backstage promo. Uh, Gibson says he thinks he redeemed himself tonight for his best of American Super Juniors tournament performance, but he's looking to the next show and his world title rematch with Austin Aries. James says he in underestimated Aries last time and he will not make the same mistake in the rematch. Finally, he also get- call, he also calls black uh, he also calls black tiger black black tiger mask. <laughs> I thought that was cute, black tiger mask. Um, I would love if he called Jushin Liger Jushin Liger mask. That would be good. But um, <laughs> elsewhere, we see Sugar Sean Price. It, was, it feels like we haven't seen him in a while. He's with Colt Cabana. 
Colt is unhappy that he was kicked right in the bollocks in his match tonight. Colt says he was there for Nigel in Boston, and Nigel wasn't there for him tonight, or, or in, them on that show, and now he does this. Colt then mocks Nigel's accent with an impression of him until Nigel walks in and says, If you have something to say, say it to my face, shithead. Colt clams up a lot, kind of like a cowardly heel at this point, and just says, oh, you, you kicked me in the balls. Nigel says accidents happen, and he asks Colt if he wants another accident to happen. And on that kind of strangely ominous note, we end the show. So before I get opinions from you guys, I'll get some opinions from some other people, because as uh, you guys mentioned earlier, I think, I forget which one of you, but like this was a show Gabe really hyped up a lot to a lot of people. I, I think he really wanted a lot of reviews on this. And first off, he gave a big little comment to a uh, pro wrestling torch at the time, going to the torch regarding the May 7th Ring of Honor debut in Manhattan. Ring of Honor promoter and booker Gabe Sapolsky is extremely pleased. Quote, the Manhattan debut will go down as one of the favorite nights in my entire life, Tells the, he tells the torch. Everything was just on fire all night from the crew to the fans. It was an absolutely tremendous crowd and remind me of the ECW shows at the old Elks Lodge in Queens. The atmosphere was so intense, and the guys in the ring fed off of that and performed like it was our first pay-per-view. It was just a great, great night where everything clicked, he said. He says the reactions that Samoa Joe and CM Punk received impressed him. Quote, it says that they follow the product and know the storylines and the history behind everything, and that is the best kind of crowd to have a show in front of. It showed how much they appreciate everything that Punk and Joe have done. The crowd was passionate before, during, and after the event. Gabe says, the atmosphere was tremendous from the moment I arrived. There were fans there three hours, there were fans there hours early. It's always fun to go around New York City and just take in the spirit of that city. Then when you walk into a building and see Madison Square Garden a couple blocks away, you know that you are somewhere special. So Gabe, obviously, calling not just one of the best nights of his career, one of the best nights of his life. So that leads us to what I'm going to end on before the opinions on the show, which was... We've, if long-time listeners will know, in 2004, the Pro Wrestling Torch went Ring of Honor review fucking crazy, where they were reviewing, like, a ton of Ring of Honor shows to the point where, all of a sudden, one issue, Wade Out of Nowhere posts an entire page of letters just of people saying, quit covering Ring of Honor so much we don't care. At that point, the Ring of Honor coverage, the, the at least not the news, but the reviews, almost completely dried up overnight. So it should show you how much, how big the show was and how much Gabe was pushing on people to review that we actually got the return of the round table reviews for this show. And none of these guys were as high on it, at least the ones I'm going to call out. And I just thought there were some interesting quotes. So this is not their full reviews. This is not everyone that reviewed it, but I thought this was kind of notable stuff. Wade Keller gave the show a 7.5 out of 10. He wrote, wrote, this didn't have any one match that went longer than 20 minutes or felt like a match of the year candidate. That alone is not the only way for a Ring of Honor tape to get an 8.0 score or above, but it sure helps. While there wasn't one must-see match, and while I wouldn't classify the show as must-see, I highly recommend the event. It's an enjoyable, digestible three hours of good-to-very-good wrestling action that differentiates itself from WWE and TNA due to A, crowd enthusiasm, B, innovative moves, C, feud intensity, D, big spots, and E, steady yet not annoyingly breathless or frenetic pacing. The lack of clarity of the in-ring mic work remains an issue. The commentary was fine, but not spectacular. 
As an overall package, it compares well to TNA's more disjointed and sometimes dated-feeling pay-per-views, but other than Aries vs. Shelley, nothing stood out as remarkably better than the great performances by TNA's top X-Division matches. It would be difficult for a wrestling fan of any style not to enjoy this show. I've seen better overall shows from Ring of Honor, but it is very good overall. The New York crowd's enthusiasm made up for the somewhat shoddy-looking setting. That brings us to Bruce Mitchell, who also gave it a 7.5, and I got an excerpt from him. He said, This was a solid Ring of Honor show with plenty of very good wrestling. I didn't like the two neck spots that were a central part of the show, though. The risk for Jay Lethal and Jack, Le- Jack Evans simply wasn't worth any possible reward. It's a problem for this promotion. What kind of spot or angle will wake up a crowd more educated to judging the star rating than to getting emotionally involved in the stories? The Ring of Honor World title match with Austin Aries defending against Alex Shelley was very good. The height of the European style on the independent scene. The work carried the match, and Shelley's quest to be a babyface champion wasn't compelling. Aries has been a good choice to follow Samoa Joe as Ring of Honor champion. He's a strong enough worker in a different way that fits well into the role. The match between Colt Cabana and Nigel McGuinness was pretty decent. Cabana is one of the more most well-rounded characters in the promotion, but unfortunately that character belongs to Disco Inferno. The did he or did he not personally low blow issue at the end was well booked. This is a good show for anyone interested in starting up with Ring of Honor. It's not a good sign, though, that when the boutique opened in the biggest city in the world, only 400 fans showed up. So... Guys, before I go to the last quotes, let me just say, I think Bruce gets like 18 things wrong in this little excerpt. First off, Austin Aries versus Alex Shelley is the height of the European style. I don't think there's anything about that match that's European, especially when Nigel McGuinness and Colt Cabana is clearly the match on the show that's European-influenced. Second of all, I think as Matt, you just pointed out, in actuality, that Jay Lethal cop killer double stomp is pretty safe, I would say. I mean, I um, mean, not not any much, not so much less safe than a regular cop killer, at least. You know? Yeah. Uh, and then finally, I would say, oh, okay, third. Actually, there's two points I want to make. Third, this is something um, uh, Bruce has done multiple times, but he keeps saying that Colt Cabana is basically a Disco Inferno ripoff. Other than the fact that they both had some comedy. I don't know what they possibly have in common. Uh, Colt Cabana wrestles a completely different style. Even the way he works comedy into matches is different. His gimmick is different. I I would say he's a much more talented, well-rounded person. I don't know. Unless you think that every wrestler that has ever done a comedy spot ever is a Disco Inferno ripoff. I don't know how his character, quote, belongs to Disco Inferno. And then finally... I mean, the Observer claims, and who knows if the Observer is right, but they claimed it was a overflow 750 crowd, and meanwhile, Bruce says it's a 400 fan showed up, which I don't, again, I don't get any of that. I just don't understand. And then finally, we get Jason Powell, who, if people who weren't really reading The Torch at the time, big ECW guy, was always kind of strangely a little bit hard on Ring of Honor. He never quite got it. And he gave this show a 7.0. He writes... I hate to be the curmudgeon of the group, but I just didn't see much of a difference between this show and other Ring of Honor events. Let's start with the basics. Yes, the in-ring product is very good. However, the work rate really isn't any better than you see in most top WWE and even TNA matches. That's so much a shot at, against Ring of Honor as much as it is a testament to how good 
the work rate is across the board these days. The Ring of Honor wrestlers try hard, but they just aren't as polished as some of their counterparts from TNA. The biggest flaw I see is that most of the wrestlers know how to pop a crowd with flashy moves, yet rarely show any understanding of how to keep the crowd hot by following up with the right set of moves. Few, if any, Ring of Honor wrestlers come across like major stars. Having attended a Ring of Honor event last year, I can say that wrestlers such as Samoa Joe, Brian Danielson, and CM Punk come, come off like stars in person. However, they just didn't come across that way on this video release, and the fact that live crowds were split in their support for most of the major matches didn't help in this case. It's great that the crowds react so passionately for the wrestlers and have the freedom to choose their personal favorites, but it almost sends the message to new reviewers that there's no next big thing on the Ring of Honor talent roster because the fans don't seem to unanimously rally behind anyone. Another problem is that they just, there are just too many factions. Do we really need to have a small posse of stablemates and managers at ringside for most matches? Are some of these managers and valets really worth the appearance fees that they collect? At the very least, the announcers need to do a better job of keeping viewers up to date on who's aligned with whom. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Ring of Honor needs to hire a, Q, a crew of legitimate announcers because Gabe Zapolsky just isn't cutting it. There are too many dead air spots in the commentary. It's all for letting the angle and the crowd do, I'm all for letting the angle and the crowd do the talking, but either this is happening too frequently in Ring of Honor, or the announcers need to do a better job of keeping the conversation flowing. Um, guys, uh, oh, and finally, he also adds, um, the production values are awful. I'm so tired of not understanding half the words the wrestlers and managers say during their in-ring promos. It would be nice if company officials would get after some of the wrestlers about upgrading their Bush League rig gear. I just didn't buy Alex Shelley as a challenger for the Ring of Honor title. His ring work is solid, but he lacks charisma and never really care about whether he won or lost his match. Uh, guys, kind of surprising considering how well the show remembered that these guys, while giving decent ratings... We're kind of surprisingly harsh, and I have to imagine Gabe probably pushed these guys to review the show, and it's probably like a case of be careful what you wish for, because they ended up giving the show, I think, some of the least enthusiastic, most critical reviews that anyone of this era gave the show. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on that before we get into our thoughts? Or Because I just yeah. thought it would be interesting to kind of compare our thoughts to their thoughts. Yeah, these guys are fucking lost. It's okay. It's cool. Some people don't understand wrestling. You know, that's why that's why they have the torch and not the observer. Uh, just totally <laughs> out to lunch. Horrendous takes. This is a classic show. I, I just like, I, I mean, even beyond everything else, it's like, I don't know how you can watch a show with that, with that crowd. And not be like, and be like, oh, this is basically the same as all the other Ring of Honor. There's, I don't see any difference between this and like Back to Basics, and, make, <laughs> and, and making a critique about how they don't know how to keep the crowd going after a move, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Just, just, just insane, completely lost. Maybe they were just mad at Gabe for pushing them to review it. I don't know, but uh, what did Dave say about the show? Well, well and I'm just before we get to, I just want to say yeah. about the torch. Um, I used to listen to the Bruce Mitchell, like, Wade Keller audio show. All This is, like, probably the first wrestling podcast I really listened to back in 2005. Maybe even as far back as 04. I'm not even positive. And I found, you know, their talk about, like, the issues of the day interesting. But when it comes to, like, reviewing and, like, analyzing an event and matches and wrestling styles and stuff, I've never understood what planet they were on like it just like it just feels like their analysis of like the actual matches just seems so alien to me like all at, at every point in history i i just like we just see wrestling like just so differently it's 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 very interesting and this is no exception 
the one thing that really stood out to me, I think, and it's something that they've done, they've done occasionally, which is saying that these wrestlers aren't as polished. And look, some of them aren't. Obviously, there's Meltzer would say that Meltzer would say the same shit. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly that. And you know, certain of the wrestlers certainly, you know, they don't have the greatest gear. They don't, you know, and certainly some of the spotty or undercard guys definitely have matches where their execution isn't clean. But I don't know how anyone could look at this era of low key or Samoa Joe or God fucking James Gibson and say that they're not some of the most polished wrestlers mechanically in terms of how they work, everything, their presence as anybody in the major leagues. Like I don't, I, I really do think that's literally just saying indie guys, seeing them wrestle in a small kind of, you know, small looking building and, and instantly just putting unpolished indie guy, like, you know, like comparing the, you know, this is, this isn't quite on the level of some TNA stuff. You know who the fucking highlights of a lot of TNA for the next few years are going to be? The guys you're saying aren't as good as the guys in TNA right now. You know, Samoa Joe is going to be the fucking best thing they've ever had very soon. You know, AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels, a, you know, Ring of Honor regulars, uh, just. And you know, oh, these guys, yeah, they're, they're, they're good, but they don't have that polish that a TNA guy would have. Like, yeah, they don't have the polish of a fucking, I don't know. Uh, name somebody. I, I don't know. Like, uh, I have no. The America, America's Most Wanted. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, Samoa Joe, he's just not quite as smooth as that Chris Harris. Like, wh- what the fuck are you talking about? But, I mean, still, they didn't give it horrible ratings, but I will, for the Melcher thing, I didn't find any review. He just went off the live reports, which was, it was an oh, incredible show. Oh, I, I, I wish I had known. I, there, he does do a review. Um, Oh, that must be some observer way later that I haven't gotten to. Yeah, yet. it's 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 in um, it's in July. Oh, I, uh, I if you give me a second and I'll edit out a few minutes, I can find it. Um, if you if okay. you're if you're okay with that, sure. Uh, All right, that wasn't so bad. So this is from the uh, July fourth, two thousand and five issue of the Observer. He says, um, if you haven't seen the product before, a good start point is the five seven show in New York. It's a so show Dave gets it. Yeah, it's a show where every match on the card is strong, and every match is different. The Izzy and Deranged versus Azriel and Dixie opener won't fit everyone's tastes because it's the classic indie match of guys who don't look at all like wrestlers doing crazy spots one after the other. But once you get past the not looking like wrestlers, you kind of recognize guys that can't get over doing any other style until they are established stars to begin with, so the best you can do is do that style well. They didn't miss spots, and their stuff looked great, and the crowd was going nuts by the finish. And that was the weakest match on the show. Nigel McGuinness versus Colt Cabana was a storytelling European-style match where Cabana would get where Cabana get winning. He said, "Where Cabana get winning the match?" Ha ha! You have to read Meltzer for once. Not so easy. Ha ha! <laughs> <laughs> and McGuinness got frustrated. McGuinness was with was McGinnis was with a low blow, but it delivered with plausible it was delivered with plausible deniability that it could be an accident. So you get a clean pinfall and a story that kept the program going. James Gibson versus Black Tiger was a good Japanese style match. BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs versus Jack Evans and Roderick Strong was a fast paced high impact and big moves tag title match. Samoa Joe versus Jay Lethal with Joe winning the pure title was good in the sense the crowd bought it. Joe has the ability to sell and look vulnerable against much smaller guys and still get over as a tough guy, which is a real talent. Lethal is a good athlete, but his strikes are very weak. That's what I was referring to before. Uh. In ROH, he can get away with it because of his athleticism, but he'd be exposed in WWE. 
Aries versus Alex Shelley in a title match was an excellent championship match. If Aries was six feet tall, people would be talking about him like he was the next Shawn Michaels. He's got awesome talent, and he does a great job in the champion role, and I was very skeptical of the decision to make him champion. The problem is, he has to earn it to new fans, because he doesn't look like a world champion, so he always has a hurdle to overcome. Main event of Joe and Lethal tagging against Homicide and Low-Key was more of a street fight style great match, including a sick finish on Lethal with a combination cop killer and double foot stomp off the top, with Lethal taking it in a manner where it was sold as a believable injury spot. Um, Seems like he didn't mention the the rave punk stuff, which is surprising, but um, he does do the annoying thing that he always seems to do where he... uh, where he keeps talking about how the guys don't look like wrestlers, um, which uh, is a pet peeve of mine, but he definitely seemed to get the show a lot more than uh, than the Torch guys did. And, and I will give him credit. You know, he does almost call himself out where people who have listened to the show, regu- our podcast regularly, will know, like, when Aries became champion, Dave was pretty ske- was fairly skeptical that Aries was going to be able to follow up, you know, Joe. And obviously, I wouldn't say Aries is Joe level, but, you know, Dave's outright saying, like, hey, I was skeptical and he's winning me over. So I think a lot of people would be wouldn't humble themselves like that to actually go back and be like, look, yeah, I was I was kind of wrong about this guy. So credit to him. Um, so with all the other reviews of course, the only thing that matters at the end of the show, guys, is what we thought of it. Aaron, you're the guest. I mean, you already gave some of your thoughts, but if you have any more final thoughts, now's the time to, uh, just what'd you think of the show and what'd you think of revisiting it? I guess you've poor you because we're so slow. You mentioned you rewatched it a second time for the show. So you revisited it twice recently. You know, today, earlier in the day, I was kind of dreading watching it because I was like, Oh, it's like finally nice outside and I'm going to be like spending it inside watching a wrestling show that I saw like a month or two ago. But it's just a great fucking show. It's a blast. Uh, You know, it makes me nostalgic. uh, You know, it's my first ever wrestling show. It was incredible live. Not many of the shows I've gone to. I've been very fortunate. I've gotten to go to a lot of cool wrestling shows. So some of them have like gotten up to that level. Um, But yeah, it's an excellent show. And probably for me, one of the most memorable like top to bottom ring of honor shows in terms of like i've seen probably like most of the shows through like the middle of 2006 and i would say this is up there with like um i guess like uh the 100th show in terms of sort of just like really memorable great ring of honor shows from from top to bottom i mean it's, it's definitely like yeah, you know, main event spectacles, death before dishonor. I don't know. It's yeah, it's just it's one of the great shows. I you know, I I, I don't know. What do you guys think? So um, I I his, the funny thing like reading like the Wade Keller thing like I agree with some of what he said, but my feelings on the show are way more positive. Like I agree. I don't think there is a match of the year can on the show. In fact, if I was going to use like the old star ratings. I don't think there's a four-star match on the show. I would have a bunch of matches at three and three-quarter star, like right at the edge. But here's the thing. To me, this show, if you were going to use like a weird baseball analogy, I think this is a show where there's no home run, but the show is nothing but doubles and triples. Like everyone succeeds, everyone gets a hit, and not just like a little hit. Like it's good to really good. And if nothing's – like nothing is going to be on on that, I think, on our end-of-year things. Less probably no individual match, but the show will probably be on our end-of-year things because 
there's a consistency of quality to the show and there's a vibe to it. Like, um, I forget one of the quotes, one of the ones I read was that it almost had like a pay-per-view type. I think Gabe said that. And I agree. This felt in a weird way, almost like a ring of honor pay-per-view before they had them, like, like a major event. The crowd was great being in New York for the first time in a long time and in Manhattan for the first time ever does actually make the show feel different. And it just feels like a company after kind of a, a weird first quarter that is instantly now back to being hot again. And I guess my last thing before I throw it to you, Matt, is the best way I can sound what, why the show is what, how I feel about the show is you and I, we usually watch the, we're not tough. Like Aaron Tao, we watch the show, our shows in piecemeal because we're taking notes after every match. So instead of foregoing, a really beautiful sunny day for a couple of losers on a Saturday night, or just one loser. Me, I don't want to call it down. You're, you're, you're great, Matt, but me, I'm the um, king of the losers <laughs> for a king and his, and his, and his jester. Um, we, we normally watch, you know, I would say we usually talk about, Oh, I watched, you know, half an hour today or whatever and did the notes and whatever. This was one of the only shows where I still did that, did, did that, but I, could have watched the show in one sitting and wrote the notes in one sitting, even though that would have been like probably five to six hours of my time in one go. Like I was always going like, Oh, I can't wait to watch this next. I can't wait to watch this. It's just probably the most compulsively watchable ring of honor show we've ever watched where it's almost like the Lay's potato chips of ring of honor shows where it's like, you just always want to see the next segment. The next match, it just sounds as appealing as the last one. And Every, not every show needs a match of the year contender. Like Wade was right when he said that. I just think I think differently about the show than him. I, I I think a show can be a great show without having one fantastic great match. And I think Manhattan Mayhem is like the epitome of that. Matt, what do you think? Um, so you just gave an excellent review to this show. And just to show you what I feel about this show, I feel like you dramatically underrated it. <laughs> um, like, I think this is easily the best show we've watched in the entire time that we've done this show. I have a hard Let's time. Go. I have a hard time thinking that there's a better ROH show ever, honestly. And I didn't even go to this one. I went to a lot of fantastic ROH shows. I still think this is the best show they ever did. I think that. Um, I, you're right, there wasn't a match of the year, but I do think there were four-star matches. I think the tag title match was a four-star match. I think you could probably argue that the uh, the pure title match was maybe even the world title match. Um, you know, I think that there were fantastic angles. Um, a crowd, like, I mean, there are just... In ROH history, I don't know that there was ever a better crowd uh, up and down than the, the crowd on this show. Like, you have crowds for certain matches, you know, like Joe and Kobashi and Cage of Death and the 100 show main event. But, like, from the beginning to end, the crowd was amazing. Um, every single match was at least pretty good, most very good or better. Um, it had... Um, you know these 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 angles that really connected everything. It had an angle that wouldn't even seem like a big deal, where the Carnage crew came back and it felt like a huge deal. You know, had the return of Loki, had had Joe and Punk just at the absolute peak of them, just seeming like just like the lords and masters of ROH. Like, um, it the show that I would most actually compare it to is ECW Barely Legal their first pay-per-view, and you sort of, you know, kind of said this is like ROH's first pay-per-view, just in terms of the crowd heat, the pacing, you know, just, just this feeling like something that 
should explode like and be this this huge deal because everything was clicking and i really do feel like even though i nitpicked some stuff you know there's some stuff that felt ridiculous to me but like just you know as in totality it just everything was clicking like this is a moment in time that i don't think they could ever recapture and i know because i i went to the futures now and we'll talk about that you know fairly soon hopefully um but you know that was a really good show and I watched this, and this was like on another level. And I like was almost like chasing the dragon. I would go back to these ROH shows and like chase the vibe that I felt watching this show at home. And you know, one of the other shows at the New Yorker Hotel, you know, they they felt pretty special. And like like I went to Escape from New York, and that felt like a, that was that had an amazing crowd too. And you know, Joe and Kobashi. But you know, I realized pretty shortly like this show was not the norm. Like this, this had a very uniquely special atmosphere that I, you know, it, again, you really, I don't know if there were any other shows that really had this atmosphere. And, um, there were definitely shows with more top level matches. Um, there were definitely shows with bigger angles, bigger blow offs, you know, maybe even more important developments, but I don't think there was a show that just felt this perfectly packaged as, as this one did. I, well, I, I, I would, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, so, I would say I, I, if, if I'm rating this on the torch scale, ten out of ten. I would just ask you, Matt. Like, even like, I think it's rare among Ring of Honor. It might be rare among wrestling. Like, how many times does a three-hour wrestling show not have one match or one major angle that I would even classify as average? Like, you know, sometimes you go, oh, there, there's two great matches and a lot of good matches and an average match or whatever. I don't think there's anything I would even rate as low as average. Like, everything on the show is better than average, and m- almost everything is, like, well bet, like, far above average. Yeah, and like, not there's just... There's not a moment in this match that dips. I mean, in the show that dips, really, for me. Yeah, and not just that, like, it was good. It's like, it clicked, you know? Like, like they everything achieved exactly what they wanted it to achieve. And, and that's... And, and then some. And, you know, that's, I think, what makes it so great. This is, I you know, maybe even in terms of like a like, – because I know like Gabe is a guy that really put a lot of thought into like how he paced shows and booked them. And in terms of like that, it's like a one-night booking achievement. This might be his crowning achievement. Yeah, and even – it was him trying – it was Gabe in a, like in a way – Gabe was obviously influenced by his ECW upbringing and all that. But like in some ways like he tried to steer away from certain tropes. In some ways this is like Gabe doing an ECW style show and it like – like and in a really great way. Yeah, like, in, like, so, in some way, in some way, in some event. ways, doing it better because like the wrestling was better up and down the show. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's just really cool to see him kind of bring out that style and be like, yeah, we're gonna have like the crazy impromptu opening, the crazy impromptu end, and it's just like and there's a there's a fair bit of variety on the show with the bloodbath and the European style match, and you know you got the crazy spot fest tags, like. Yeah, it just it, it, it's it's a cool show that also is kind of a unique has a unique vibe to it too. Like, yeah, I don't think other great Ring of Honor shows would ever quite feel like this one. But that's that for this show. And uh, so, as always, uh, Aaron, do you have anything you want to plug? I know you uh, you were talking before the show before we started recording that you've made the smart decision to sometimes uh, retroactively shut down Twitter for a while. Smarter man than many of us, including me. Do you have any projects now that you want to plug anything you're going on? Do you want people to know about your social media? Do you yes, not I have, I have my Twitter at AP tab. I'm locked right now, but uh, what, you know, big project right now we're working on uh, trying to get, 
my friend Jesseline Carr, uh, elected to the uh, city council here in New York City. She's running for the council in Eastern Queens. Uh, she is the, the daughter of a taxi driver and a grocery store worker, a working class woman, uh, trying to just build a better city that works for everyone, looking to expand public transit, huge transit desert uh, in Eastern Queens, looking to fully fund our public schools, and, and bring relief to small business owners and, and taxi drivers during this coronavirus crisis. Um, you can check her out at justlinecore.nyc, J-A-S-L-I-N-K-A-U-R.nyc. Uh, if you want to build a better New York City, sign up for a phone bank, uh, come knock some doors sometime, and uh, hopefully I'll see folks out there. That's my favorite plug in the history of this show. Yeah, uh, much like Stephen Graham, whenever someone takes the rare opportunity on the show when we give them the plugs to actually plug something that would, like, better the world, I always feel like, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? I do a Ring of Honor podcast. <laughs> like, oh, God. So, uh, yes, uh, definitely if you vote in the New York area or even if you don't, just support local politics. Look up your candidates. I mean, I'm sure Aaron's got a good one here probably. I mean – I haven't looked into it, so maybe that's – I trust Aaron. In other, yeah, we don't, we don't miss. Early listeners of the Everything Elite podcast will remember you know, getting the AOC plugs before she became famous, uh, Tiffany Caban plugs before she blew up. So I'm kind of like uh, – I'm kind of the like the Gates of Hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gates of Hope's give left-wing electoral politics. Uh, you know, I'll let you know who the big stars are before they blow up. So uh, you know, get in now. If and, it, well, uh, you know, it, it, and, and if she becomes one, or when she becomes one, um, I will I will clip out that and be like, that was on my podcast. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So um, for our plugs, nothing noble at all. If you want to contact us, it's through the years at gmail.com. That's T H R O H. Um, I'm at Trevor Dame on Twitter. Matt is at Mayor MGF. We have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs forum, and of course, you know, if you're listening to this, you know where to find the podcast. So. Thank you so much, everybody. Next time on the show, we will be covering the final showdown, which is going to be the blow-off of the Best of Five series between Brian Danielson and Homicide inside a steel cage, plus the Austin Aries-James Gibson world title rematch. Another big show right there. Until That'll be fun. And so until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. <laughs>